0: And since I bought my 2016 F 150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F 150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Whitey Bulger, a man who in the early years of the 21st century, in an era marked not by mob figures, but more by jihadism and the war on terror, became the highest-ranking organized crime figure on the Federal Bureau of Investigations' 10 Most Wanted list. He was number two on the FBI's list for years, right behind Osama bin Laden. Whitey was not an Italian mafia don or a Latin American narco or a Russian mafia gangster. He was an old-style Irish-American mob boss from Boston. During the years of his reign, James Whitey Bulger, the kingpin of South Boston, was like a character out of an old mob movie. Politically connected, tough but sentimental— kind to his mother and pets and also a ruthless sociopath who murdered at least 19 people. Bulger was notorious for his readiness to use violence, especially murder, to achieve his criminal goals. He was attracted to street crime early in life, joining gangs and earning his first arrest at the age of 14, which sent him to a reformatory. And then a few bank robberies later, Whitey went away for a decade. And we might not have ever heard of him, He might have ended up quickly going right back to prison for other robberies and be one of the thousands of gangsters whose names never make it into pop culture had it not been for his brother, Billy. Billy would serve as a member of the Massachusetts Senate for 25 years and president of the University of Massachusetts for seven years. And Billy's connected position would somewhat cover Whitey with a protective shield against retaliation. And after getting out of prison in 1965, Whitey had a little advantage when it came to being able to make a name for himself during Boston's gang wars a time of unprecedented bloodshed for organized crime in the city. After becoming a prominent member of the Killeen Gang, he made allies in the rival Mullen Gang, bumped off his competitors, and established himself as the most powerful underworld figure in all of Boston. He created a criminal organization based in Southie that ruled the roost on Boston-area organized crime for over 20 years, from the early 1970s until 1995, when Bolger was tipped off that the feds were coming to get him, and he went on the lam. And who tipped him off? the feds themselves, specifically one fed an agent by the name of John Connolly, who Whitey Bolger had been working closely with for years. As Kevin Weeks said, Whitey had been killing rats for decades, and the whole time he had been one himself. The feds both protected him from investigations into his own crimes and also actively helped him kill rival gangsters. He begun his collaboration with John Connolly around 1974, a collaboration that would eventually land both of them in prison after killing a lot of people and making a lot of money. How exactly did Whitey Bulger rise to the top of the Boston underworld? Why would the feds help him? What eventually brought him down? How did this informant kill rats while being the biggest rat himself? All this and more in this true crime, historical, Boston underworld, Hudlum's edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> you're listening to Time Suck. Time <laughs> Suck. happy monday meat sex welcome to the cult of the curious i'm dan cummins the master sucker guy whose curiosity gets him killed sometimes meat sack who tries to express the truth as he sees it even when he knows based on the current zeitgeist the truth is going to piss off a lot of people i try not to kink shame all you dirty dirty foot fuckers out there sexy dungeon sexy lady bus driver and you are listening to time suck uh really quick because it's going to bother me if i don't say it uh whitey did go on the lam in 1995 technically but really he kind of left in 1994 and then came back and then went again so sometimes i might say 94 sometimes i might say 95 and because i'm an an obsessive psychopath i have to share that now uh a couple quick announcements and then we're into the show i have some extra tour dates coming up where i'll be working out a new hour of stand-up hopefully can share uh dates uh very soon about when slash where the previous recorded hour will be released uh, in addition to being in Spokane, at the Spokane Comedy Club, August 4th and 5th, I'll be at the Funny Bone in Richmond, Virginia, September 8th and 9th, then Burlington, Vermont at the Vermont Comedy Club, October 6th through the 8th, at the Helium Comedy Club in Buffalo, New York, October 27th and 28th, at the Vic and the Chicago Comedy Festival, uh, November 3rd, the Comedy Connection in Providence, Rhode Island, October 17th and eighteen, Comedy Off-Broadway in Lexington, Lexington Kentucky, uh, December 1st and 2nd. And the Funny Bone in Virginia Beach, Virginia, December 15 and 16. And tickets available at dancummins.tv. New merch in the Bad Magic store this week. Introducing the Expert Collection. For those of you who have made it this far, congrats. You've officially made it to expert status. If anyone wants to question you about cults, serial killers, or big historical events, simply point to your shirt or mug. It's official. It's written there. You know more than they do. and There's nothing they can do about it. So calling all true crime experts, history experts, and cult experts, your time is now. Head on over to badmagicmerch.com and claim your expert status. Uh, This month's Bad Magic Charity, still the Hill Country Humane Society, working on getting an overpopulation of animals spayed and neutered by building a mobile spay neuter clinic. Still don't know that donation amount as I record this. Their website is still hchstexas.com if you want more info. And finally, saw some recent online rumblings and just wanted to clear up something. While I am not Christian, I do not hate Christians. Uh feels kind of weird to feel like I have to say that, but I, I do want to get that out there. A lot of misconceptions. Uh, yeah, I live in a, in a Christian culture. It's the cultural backdrop for most of the stories I tell here, and it would be disingenuous to not apply the same analytical approach I apply to everything else to that backdrop. Uh, you know, I do hate what some Christian organizations have done to people throughout history And in order not to whitewash history when discussing something like the Crusades or witchcraft, you know, it'd be kind of weak for me to pretend that Christian beliefs didn't lead to some slaughter. Uh, I do hate how some Christian groups, definitely not all, focus on demonizing some of the people I love instead of loving them, but I can also still love and respect people who disagree, uh, disagree with me on shit that I feel strongly about. And finally, I hope you see that most of my anger does actually maybe ironically come from a place of love. I don't like people being bullied, mistreated, unnecessarily harmed. It's why I hate pedophiles. It's why I hate, you know, when corporations like uh, Purdue Pharma do what they've done. That's why I hate uh, what many cults have done to people. And it's why I hate what some religious institutions and some beliefs have done to people. All that shit comes uh, uh, comes from the same fucking place inside of me. Don't fuck with the lives of people who are not hurting anyone. Don't take advantage and exploit people. And that's it. I'm an emotional human being. I feel strongly about some stuff. But I also want to honor, well, you know, the, the fact that many of you come here from a, for escapism and I will work on how I express some of my feelings. So hail Nimrod, uh, team meets Zach, and now let's fucking get gangster. Discuss a topic that brings us back to the land of organized crime. It's a place we visited most recently with our Irish mob episode. And in many ways, the story of James, uh, James Whitey Bulger's life will be a continuation of and a companion piece to that episode. Bulger was shaped largely by the centuries-long legacy of the Irish mob in America, a legacy of hard scrabble individuals going out on their own, becoming high-profile figures in the criminal underworld. He stood in a long line of Irish mobsters that sometimes cooperated with gangsters of other ethnicities and, more frequently, worked to bring them down. But the legacy he was probably the biggest part of was that of the close ties between the Irish-American underworld and local, the local political system and local law enforcement, like we went over in the Irish mob episode for Irish-American immigrants in the 1840s and 1850s, right? That started way back with Tammany Hall, the corrupt political machine that exchanged meals and shelter for votes. Later on, that political machine would extend to protect gangsters from prosecution. There would be lots of Irish law enforcement officers, politicians at all levels, working to keep the Irish underworld afloat as well. In Whitey's case, this would come about partially as a result of his brother, Billy Bulger. Billy Bulger, who was a Massachusetts politician with friends in high places. But it would mostly come about as a result of Whitey's partnership with the FBI. Most of the gangsters that Whitey interacted with on a daily basis had no idea that he'd been a top-tier informant for the FBI for decades since the early 1970s. Right? Started working with a FBI special agent who was also Irish American, also from the area, part of the same culture. Whitey would help the FBI take down the prominent mafia figures of Boston, and in exchange, his FBI handlers would tip him off to any investigations into him. While this tit for tat did not start out as being unnecessarily super legal, uh, it sure became that kind of relationship. Whitey's handler, John Connolly, and Connolly's boss, John Morris, were soon accepting thousands and thousands of cash money, uh, blood money dollars from Whitey and Whitey's right-hand man, Steve Flemmi, and inviting them into their houses like they were, you know, just old friends. Flemmi and Bulger were their top informants, their golden geese, and they would do anything to protect them, including spreading fake stories about who killed certain people and why when it was really Whitey Bulger that did it and that made them culpable in some of the murders. Later at Whitey's trial, after a 16-year-long manhunt, those same FBI agents would allege that it was Whitey who corrupted them, not that they had been equal partners. That's bullshit, they were equal partners. Ironically, it was the fact that Whitey was Irish that would lead his defense to say there was no way he could have been an informant. Uh, His defense lawyer, J.W. Carney Jr. would say, James Bulger is of Irish descent, and the worst thing, an Irish person could consider doing is becoming an informant. That was the first and foremost reason why James Bulger was never an informant against people. Uh, Case closed, everybody. Everybody knows that all Irish Americans have the exact same opinions on everything. Come on. They all share the exact same values, all act and behave in exactly the same way. And that's why, just like Whitey, all Irish American people are murderous crime lords. Or something, I, I guess. Yeah, what a bunch of bullshit. Uh, Whitey certainly was an informant one of the most murderous and notorious FBI informants ever if not the most murderous uh, murderous and notorious and one of the few to corrupt his handlers you know to the extent he did his decades long handler John Connolly ended up convicted of racketeering and second degree murder for shit he did with Whitey Connolly's story is so wild started off trying to take down organized crime then worked with organized criminals to do so then essentially became a gangster himself and went to prison for the crimes he'd initially dedicated himself to stopping. In addition to all of the uh, usual crimes that, you know, go along with being a gangster, crimes like racketeering, money laundering, intimidation, extortion, murder. Whitey Bulger also really corrupted some members of the FBI. Dude was clearly a charmer, good at justifying what he did. His bodyguard, Kevin Weeks, would remember, we had good times. One time we were at the Ritz in Boston. It was probably the most upscale restaurant in the city at the time. I'm sitting there with my wife and Whitey and his girlfriend, drinking Dom Perignon, eating caviar. And Whitey turns to me and asks, who deserves this more than us? I'm puzzled and go, what? He points to other tables. Does anyone in here deserve this more than us? It was a poignant moment where he was basically justifying what we were doing. The only problem was people were getting killed because of what we were doing. In addition to being especially charming, especially good at rationalizing what he did, Whitey also especially enjoyed the things he rationalized. Weeks would say, if he had asked me to shoot a guy, I would have. Everybody working for Whitey was capable of killing and would do whatever they had to do, but he actually enjoyed doing it himself. I've heard many times that uh, you greatly increase your chances of becoming successful in business if you do something you truly love, right? You'll work harder. You'll put in more hours. You'll give something everything you've got if you love it. And if you also have a natural talent for what you're doing, That's giving yourself truly the best chance for success. And finally, if you're lucky enough to catch some breaks, get some opportunities to excel at what you're best at and what you love, well, that's the secret success formula, I think. Right? What am I best at? What do I love doing the most? And what opportunities do I have to do what I love? This is why I think Whitey rose to the top. He was fucking good at being a gangster. He loved being a gangster including killing any motherfucker that got in his way. And then the FBI would give him an opportunity to excel at what he was already good at, what he was already doing. Right to the top, baby. Sky's the limit. Let's tell the story of Whitey Bulger. I headed back to Boston today, one of my favorite cities. I actually worked on this script for three days in Boston. Lindsay and I took our first non-work, not bringing the kids, a little mini vacation to Boston days before uh, recording this. First uh, non-work, not bringing the kids, a little mini vacation in uh, quite some time. Not first ever. A work vacation to some extent, but not like going to do shows, right? Still a vacation. We worked during the days, then went out for drinks in the back bay one night. Another night saw Dead & Co. at Fenway. Oh, man, never went to a Dead show before. So fun. Uh, Thoughts of Whitey Bulger. Also, I'm sure, catching uh, you know, Red Sox games at Fenway you know, were floating through my head. A lot of stuff was going through my head. I was tripping on a, a manageable amount of LSD. <laughs> I knew the dead would uh, cater their uh, set for fans tripping and I was right, it was glorious. But walking around town, working in some coffee shops, thinking about this dude completely fucking running crime in this big ass, beautiful historic city was, uh, I don't know, just very interesting to think about that one person could run so much crime in such a big place. Made this episode a little bit magical for me. I could feel the spirit of Whitey around me or maybe I was just feeling the afterglow. Uh, since we'll be spending so much of this episode in Boston, it is worth getting a quick refresher on how the Boston underworld developed and operated, leading up to the time that Whitey would engineer his takeover. And then we'll timeline it from there. So here we go. Beginning in the 19th century as a working class port city with an organized labor force of dock workers and team workers, or teamsters, excuse me, and numerous segregated ethnic neighborhoods, Boston was typical of the kind of US city where organized crime would find its footing. Right, New York, Cleveland, Philadelphia, Chicago, and other large cities had a similar system of criminal rackets. These criminal rackets took place mostly in small ethnic neighborhoods where people were used to banding together to look out for one another and make a living however they could, sometimes illegally, just like we went over in depth in the Irish Mob episode. When I start uh, talking about the Irish Mob, by the way, I keep saying Irish Mob, I still keep thinking about that ridiculous YouTube video by sketch comedy, late night show writer, Connor O'Malley, that my son Kyler showed me a long time ago. It's titled simply Irish Mob, and it is still so funny to me. So stupid. Hanging out with a bunch of hanging out in a bar with a bunch of like 50 dogs. And everybody's petting the dogs and everybody's drinking beer out of little tiny glasses. Big peppy daddy walking around. We gotta go back. Talking back when back when the Irish were big. We're restarting we the Irish Mob. Was starting the Irish mob. Uh, that might not be funny. Out of context for anyone else, I just wanted to share what was uh going through my head right now. Uh so <laughs> I like the fucking dog detail. I don't know why that's so funny to me. Many of Boston's ethnic neighborhoods were Irish, especially South Boston, referred to as southie And that's where the most uh you know most of the organized crime took place. After prohibition was repealed in 1933, and all that bootlegging money had dried up, much of the criminal activity across America transitioned into labor racketeering, loan sharking, gambling, cargo pilferage you know, basically stealing, and an assortment of other crimes. By the post-war years, the 1950s, gangsterism remained pervasive, even as FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover claimed that it didn't exist, strangely. Uh, The Kefauver hearings, 1950-1951, had for the first time dragged assorted mobsters in front of a committee composed of U.S. senators. Televised live, the hearings were the first time the American public saw gangsters claim their Fifth Amendment privilege to not testify on the grounds they would be uh, incriminated. Then a decade later, the McClellan hearings, chaired by Robert F. Kennedy, shed a harsh light on the Irish mob's involvement in trade unions, such as the United Brotherhood of Teamsters, which had more rank-and-file members in the New England area than anywhere else in the country. As a mob city, Boston was typical, but it was also unique in at least one respect. The dominant mafia family in Boston was not based in Boston. It was based in Providence, Rhode Island. The uh, Patriarcha crime family, led by Raymond Patriarcha, senior, uh, held sway over Boston and much new England with mafia crews and affiliated criminal organizations throughout Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. But, but, since they didn't have a strong presence in Boston, that left something of a power vacuum there, there were mafia figures in the city based in the Italian North end, and they were powerful, but they were not any more powerful than various other criminal crews of non-Italian gangsters that existed throughout the city's many neighborhoods and suburbs. Effectively, this meant that Boston, it, its underworld was decentralized a series of interconnected suburbs and villages, you know, Somerville, Charlestown, Southie, et cetera, each with its own set of local criminal crews. And the ethnic makeup of these crews was surprisingly diverse compared to a lot of other cities. It was not uncommon for major crimes to be pulled off by crews composed of Italians, Irish, Greeks, Portuguese, etc., all working together. That generally was not the case during this era of organized crime in other places. Uh, One major example of this was the infamous Brinks robbery, which took place on January 17th, 1950, and netted $2.7 million in cash and securities. On the evening of January 17th, employees of the security firm Brinks Incorporated in Boston were closing for the day, returning sacks of undelivered cash, checks, and other material to the company safe on the second floor. Shortly before 7.30 p.m., they were surprised by five dudes, heavily disguised, quiet as mice, wearing gloves to avoid leaving fingerprints, and wearing soft shoes to muffle the noise of their footsteps all of them wore navy type peacoats gloves and chauffeur's caps each robber's face completely concealed behind a halloween mask reminds me of a point break Uh, they moved with a studied precision which suggested that the crime had been carefully planned and rehearsed in the preceding months somehow the criminals had opened at least three possibly four locked doors to gain entrance to the second floor of the brinks uh, or, or of brinks all five employees were forced at gunpoint to lie face down on the floor their hands were tied behind their backs, and adhesive tape was placed over their mouths. The thieves quickly bound the employees and began hauling away the loot. Within minutes, they'd stolen more than $1.2 million in cash, another $1.5 million in checks and other securities. And it was the largest robbery in the U.S. at the time, and there were virtually no leads. Uh, since Brinks was located in a heavily populated tenement section, many hours were consumed in interviews to locate persons in the neighborhood who might possess info of possible value. A systematic check of current and past Brinks employees was undertaken. Personnel of the three-story building, housing, in the Brinks offices were questioned. Inquiries were made concerning salesmen, messengers, others who called at Brinks and might know its physical layout, as well as its operational procedures. They also rounded up every gang and unaffiliated criminal, but couldn't figure out who did it. In fact, it was conceived, off, uh, conceived of and pulled off by a raffish mixed ethnic crew of hoods from around Boston. Reminds me of Boston's Gardner museum heist that we covered in episode 337. So many different crews, Irish, Italians, others fell under suspicion because there were so many different factions operating. But back to the Brink's job. In the late 1940s, local criminal and ne'er-do-well, Tony Fats Pino got an idea. Uh, he thought, I should lose some weight. You know, it's a cool nickname. But also a reminder that I'm needlessly increasing my chance of having a premature heart attack or developing diabetes. Diabetes, maybe. Maybe he thought that. Uh, the Sicilian native who made a name for himself in the Boston underworld and with Massachusetts law enforcement for his burglary skills, also thought of a robbery plan. When he discovered that all the money collected around the city by Brinks came through their North End headquarters, every evening he became obsessed with a new mission. What if he pulled together a small crew to rob the Brinks building one night when the city's hall for the day was all right there? Pino took his idea first to Joseph McGinnis, Joey McGinnis, uh, another bigwig in the Boston underworld who agreed to join the new venture. They then assembled a crew of nine other co-conspirators who each brought their own skills and rap sheets to the gang. For nearly two years, Pino meticulously planned the heist. His crew conducted thorough surveillance on the building, tracking the movements of the trucks, guards, and their loot. It was an adventure. John Adolph Jazz Mafi, Jazz Mafi, a member of the crew, told the Washington Post in 1978. Pino kept telling us the money was in there. He never stopped. It's hard to explain, but it was exciting. We were younger, of course. I wouldn't do it now. Yeah, I bet it was exciting. To dream of suddenly having stacks and stacks of cash that you didn't have to pay taxes on or work for? After the heist, the FBI tried to round up their suspects, but it was like trying to hold on to fish. Some of the men they interviewed were actual members of the team and known underworld figures like McGinnis, but the Brinks gang had planned for that and had their stories and alibis straight. Without any evidence to connect them to the crime, law enforcement had to let them go. All of them had worked together and they almost pulled it off. But then division in the ranks began to spread, right? As we've learned in previous robberies we've covered pocket even when they pull it off it falls apart afterwards the problem child of this little posse was joseph james specks o'keefe jimmy specks the criminals had planned to wait six years before using the money but o'keefe kept committing crimes which landed him in jail as he racked up expenses for his defense he became increasingly anxious about getting his hands on his share of the heist money because of his legal troubles he'd left his portion in the care of several of his brinks comrades first time he got it back he claimed somebody spent two thousand of it after another prison stint forced him to entrust it with colleagues again. Now is lost for good. This time he said, mafia, fucking Jimmy Specks," claimed part of it. Uh, you know, he said, uh, and then, then the other part had already been spent on his defense. Uh, and here is where things began to go off the rails. In retaliation for a, perce- or per- yeah, for a perceived theft, O'Keefe, uh, who had been brought in as one of the heavies of the group, began to put pressure on the others. And that didn't yield any funds. He kidnapped Pino's cousin who had also been part of the crew in May of 1954 and held him captive until the boss finally paid the ransom he demanded. Pino was understandably fucking pissed about his cousin being kidnapped. Over the next month, O'Keefe survived three assassination attempts, the last of which was committed by a known hitman. He suffers only minor wounds, ends up in jail again. While he's locked up, a friend of his who had helped him put pressure on the gang goes mysteriously missing, suspected to have been taken out by Pino's men. O'Keefe, He had stayed religiously tight-lipped during every previous encounter with the FBI, but now, when the feds approach again, he decides to talk. right, he's facing a long time away, he's worried for his life, and by this time, he only has bitter feelings towards his co-conspirators. For three days, starting on January 6, 1956, O'Keefe tells all. Based on his testimony, charges are issued on the 11 members of the Brinks gang just days before the statute of limitations was going to run out. Man, just days before. All of the thieves involved either served time or died before their cases made their way through the legal system. So justice was eventually served, mostly. Most of the money was gone for good, though. To this day, only around 60,000 of the stolen money has ever been recovered. Back in the 50s, this heist was, you know, typical, emblematic of the Boston underworld. Decentralized, disorganized, multi-ethnic, hot-headed. This is the criminal universe that James Bulger would enter in 1965. He had just spent nine years in prison for bank robberies having fashioned himself a a John Dillinger-type criminal, a bank robber leading a small group of criminals for one-off robberies before scattering with the profits. But now, back out of jail, perhaps looking at how difficult it was to share power like in the Brinks robbery, Whitey decides he needs to rule the underworld alone. So he sets about systematically eliminating all of his opponents, and also some of the people on his own side. He did whatever he felt it took to be the top dog, including breaking the main unspoken rule of being a gangster, becoming a rat, and secretly working with law enforcement. And now let's really get to know Whitey, this fascinating story, in today's Time Suck Timeline. Right after our mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has 0 to 1 gram of net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week, soft, fluffy and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice and it's high in fiber. And the best part, Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for sticking around. Now let's get to know Whitey and his rise to power. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a TIMESUCK timeline. Jimmy James Jim Bulger was born on September third, nineteen twenty-nine, in Dorchester, Massachusetts. His full name was actually Jimmy James Joseph Johnny Jack Bulger Jr. No, it wasn't. I just like the way it sounds with so many J words. No, his, his full name was James Joseph Bulger Jr. Still a decent amount of uh, J words there. Stepping into a slim gym was one of six children that included two younger brothers, Jackie and Billy. And uh, one of Bulger's brothers would end up uh, a, entering a life of public service. Billy. That would end up helping Whitey tremendously. William Billy Bulger would serve as a member of the Massachusetts uh, Senate for 25 years, president of the University of Massachusetts for seven years, and Billy and Jimmy would both become uh, very well known in Boston for very different reasons. Both sons of James Joseph Jingleheimer Schmidt, uh, no, James Joseph uh, Bulger Sr., a longshoreman. Both kids who grew up. Uh, both kids grew up poor, thanks to their dad losing his job when he lost an arm during an industrial accident. Sounds fucking terrible. Bulger's lived in government-subsidized housing in South Boston. Southie, Jim was the oldest son, and then as a teenager, he became the family's provider, helping his dad and his mom, Jane Veronica Jean McCarthy. Uh, Jean was a first-generation Irish immigrant, uh, and uh, you know her son, Jimmy, put food on the table. Said he got his nickname Whitey from his white blonde hair. And soon, Whitey would begin his life of crime, perhaps initially a lot more motivated to help his family than to be a gangster. Maybe, maybe, or maybe right from the start. He loved taking other people's shit and beating and or killing anyone who tried to stop him, might rat on him or stood in between him and you know bigger paydays. He started out with some tailgating, uh, aka pilfering goods off the back of delivery trucks. He was first arrested when he was 14 years old for stealing and his criminal record continued to escalate from there. As a youth, he'd be arrested for larceny, forgery, assault and battery, armed robbery, and he would end up serving five years total in a juvenile reformatory uh, where he was not reformed. 1948 when he was 19 he enlisted in the u.s air force despite a record of disciplinary problems while in the service which included disorderly conduct and rape charges in great falls montana his discharge four years later 1952 was certified as honorable hoping that rape charge uh didn't stick right uh sources only say charged not convicted that'd be beyond fucked up <laughs> if it did stick and he still was uh given an honorable discharge <laughs> right like hey uh, we really don't know how you. Uh, Raped that woman in Great Falls, Montana. But overall, we don't, we don't like that. We don't we, we don't care for it. But overall, you I don't know a good honorable airman. We're going to be discharging you with uh, with honor. Uh, around 3 years after leaving the Air Force, after work in odd jobs, it never paid what he wanted and probably after a fair amount of petty crime lost to history. In May of 1955, 25-year-old Bulger took part in a successful robbery in Pawtucket, Paw-tucket Rhode Island. A few months later, he did another, this one in Melrose, a suburb north of Boston month after that, in November, he and his partner drove all the way to Hammond, Indiana, an almost 1,000-mile uh, drive each way, where they hit the Hoosier State Bank and netted $12,612, about, about hundred and fifty grand in today's dollars. Uh, Bulger always brandished a gun in these robberies, and in Indiana, after forcing the bank's customers to lie down on the floor, he was reported to have announced, we aren't going to hurt anybody, but we have to make a living, Dillinger did. Immediately after the robbery, Whitey drove back to Boston. Soon he heard that his partner in the Indiana robbery got pinched and squealed on him. Right, The future rat gets ratted on and he leaves town. With his girlfriend at the time, a platinum blonde from Southie, he packed a car, headed out for a long drive, took him all the way around the country. Right? Took him to Reno, San Francisco, Salt Lake City, Chicago, and more. By early 1956, Bulger's back in Boston and he's still hiding out from the law. You now his former bank robbery partner ratted him out to the FBI. There's still a warrant out for his arrest. Eventually, based on a tip from another informant, another fucking rat, feds catch up with Bulger. Hiding out with his hair dyed black, Bulger was hauled out of a revered nightclub on charges of robbing banks in Melrose, Providence, and Indiana. The agent who put the cuffs on Bulger was H. Paul Rico, an ambitious young FBI investigator whose primary focus was organized crime. One of the many agents, Bulger likely pulled into some nefarious gangland shit. Many years later, on October 9th, 2003, when he was 78, Rico would be indicted for, the, uh, for murder for persuading Bulger and an associate to sanction the murder of Oklahoma City millionaire Roger Wheeler on May 27, 1991. Rico died a few months later in a Tulsa hospital before facing trial for murder. He was 78. Uh, we met Rico very briefly back in the Irish Mob episode. Already at the age of 30, Rico was known to have a special talent for cultivating underworld informants. He was exceedingly polite with Bulger, which in later years Whitey would remember. Rico, Rico would later become a crucial figure in recruiting Bulger as a top echelon informant for the FBI. With his former partner having already ratted him out, Bulger confessed to the bank robbery. He said later that he also confessed so that his girlfriend would not be charged as an accomplice. His understanding when he confessed to not just the one robbery, but to a series of robberies was that he would end up with a lighter sentence because of his confession. But then that didn't happen. and He felt burned. The judge sentenced him to 20 years behind bars. Just 25 years old, Bolger was shipped off to a maximum security federal facility in Atlanta, Georgia. And what comes next might surprise you, or maybe not. If you've listened to some of the old Time Suck episodes and have a great memory, or just have a good knowledge of formerly uh, classified US government programs. In Atlanta, he was informed by prison authorities of a highly covert program that was being offered to inmates as a way to cut time off their sentence. The program was called Project MK Ultra, and it was being administered by the CIA. Right, MK Ultra was an experimental project involving LSD, aka acid. They were trying to find a, a mind control drug, doing all these fucking LSD experiments. Still think about that episode sometimes. Uh, inmates were given the drug on a regular basis and then observed by psychiatric doctors working for the agency. As part of this program, Bulger received injections, excuse me, injections of LSD once a day for according to some sources, nearly 18 months. Others say he took at least 50 doses. Either way, that's a lot of fucking acid in prison. He wrote from prison years later in his final years about how this experiment affected him for the rest of his life. He said, sleep was full of violent nightmares. Wake up every hour or so, still that way since 57. Auditory and visual hallucinations and violent nightmares always slept with lights on. Holy fuck, acid every day. For a year and a half, if that's true. I cannot imagine tripping balls that often. Like, what would that do to your perception of reality? I wish I could have found out how, how strong his doses were. I have, to ima- I have to imagine they were all over the place, from light to very heavy trips. And in a heavy trip, man, environment is so important. It's so important to strong hallucinations. You're so sensitive, so easily influenced by your surroundings. Your perception of reality can get bent so quick. A maximum security prison full of violent offenders sounds like the fucking worst place to go on a heavy trip. Some think having his mind fucked with like this definitely pushed him in the direction of being much more violent, a heartless killer. And you know what? Maybe it did. Uh, Later in his life, Whitey would also claim that he suffered from headaches and persistent insomnia as a result of the experiments for the the rest of his life. Having your sleep fucked up for decades, that alone could make you do some crazy shit. Being chronically exhausted, not good for the mind. Uh, Whitey also couldn't stop hearing Grateful Dead songs on loop in his mind after the experiment. He said that some of the band's most popular live jams, right songs he hadn't even heard yet since the band wouldn't even start forming until after he left prison, played in his head continually for the rest of his life. It's fucking crazy. He didn't say that, but I wish it was true somehow. Also, while in prison in Atlanta, Bulger wrote letters to Father Robert uh, Drinan, Father Bobby, Boston Priest, who had become friendly with his younger brother, Billy, at Boston College. Billy, Bobby, and Jimmy. Jimmy James Joseph, Johnny Jack. Uh, Drinian had vouched for the Bulger family in Whitey's sentencing hearings. Uh, because of his brother Billy, Whitey had other contacts as well. He was uh, Billy was friendly with John W. McCormick, a US congressman who would become Speaker of the House while Whitey was in prison. I've got Johnny, Billy, Bobby. Uh, another Johnny. <laughs> uh, Bill implored McCormack to do whatever he could do for Whitey, and McCormick did. He wrote letters, made calls to the director of the Bureau of Prisons in Washington, arranged prison visits for the Bulger family. In letters from prison, Whitey promised both of these men that once he was out, he would turn his life around, follow a more enlightened crime-free path. As Whitey's making those claims, he uh, he also gets sent to Alcatraz after prison officials discover him uh, making plans to escape. He he was just working on a backup plan in case his bro and his bro's friends couldn't get him out. Looking back, finally, his three-year stay in Alcatraz. Years later, Bulgy admitted to or Bulger admitted to CNN after his 2011 capture that if I could choose my epitaph on my tombstone, it would be I'd rather be in Alcatraz. Wish I knew exactly why he said that. Uh, maybe because uh, at the very least, they weren't pumping him full of uh, constant acid there. Uh, after Alcatraz, Whitey would be moved to Leavenworth and uh, and then he will be released shortly afterwards. Let's pause on Whitey in prison and turn for a bit to an institution that will play a big role in the story to come after he gets out, the FBI. For decades, J. Edgar Hoover, director of the Bureau since its inception in 1935, had denied there was such a thing as the mafia or mob operating in the U.S. Throughout much of the post-war years, the primary focus of the FBI was Uh, what it called subversives, alleged communists, labor organizers, civil rights activists, people who chose to to voice dissent in the land of the free, who must be stopped for doing so. You're supposed to use that freedom to agree with those in power, don't you know? In the 1950s, a major focus of the Bureau was bank robbers because they often crossed state lines while fleeing a robbery. They'd been a primary target of the FBI since the days of John Dillinger and Pretty Boy Floyd. But in November of of 1957, an event that took place in upstate New York changed all that. When a local police officer in rural Tioga County stumbled upon a large-scale summit meeting of mafia-made men, high-ranking leaders mostly, from all around the U.S., the estimated 80 gangsters scattered out into the woods. So many hot, hard Italian father daddies dripping with marinara sauce, scattering through the trees. Some of them were rounded up and detained. The FBI learned just how much of a problem organized crime really was in the U.S. after talking to them. The conference in, uh, Appalachian, about fifty miles west of Binghamton, was a seminal event not so much in the history of the La Cosa Nostra, but in the history of federal law enforcement's understanding of the mob. No longer could Hoover claim that organized crime didn't exist in the U.S. I'm not entirely sure how he made that claim before that, actually. I mean, FBI agents did arrest Al Capone in 1929 when the agency was called the, the BOI, Bureau of Investigation, but, you know, whatever. Maybe he thought Capone's arrest shut it all down. Uh, when Robert F. Kennedy began his high-profile investigation of mob activity as attorney general in the early 1960s, it became even more clear how deep the criminal underworld in the U.S. ran. The question now was what to do about it. On March 14, 1961, Hoover issued a letter to the SAC's special agents in charge, highest ranking criminal investigators in each region of the U.S. And it said, uh, today the press, television, and radio, along with the express interest of the administration, keep this phase of criminal activity in a position of prominence in the public eye. Suddenly, we cannot relax more, even momentarily, our efforts in combating the criminal underworld, including the prosecution of top hoodlums. The foundation from which we forge our attack must be kept strong and fresh with the full flow of information from well-placed informants. All agents in conducting investigation of criminal matters should be constantly alert for the development of new informants and new potential informants who may be in a position to assist us. This directive will really open the informant door that Whitey will so masterfully exploit. Also, love that he is looking for top hoodlums, damn hoodlums, trying to tear this nation apart. Rat finks, boozers, dips, pinkos, scallywags, rascals, scamps, scoundrels, cads, rogues, and damn vagabonds. In April of 1961, Hoover dictated and sent out a memo to each of the SACs of various field offices around the country, emphasizing the importance of intelligence gathering in the field of organized crime. The memo stated that it was urgently necessary to develop particularly qualified live sources within the upper echelon of the organized hoodlum element, who will be capable of furnishing the quality of information required. As much as I hate to say it, boys, we must work with these dreaded hoodlums. The top echelon informant program was born. The program was inaugurated June 21st, 1961, right? Four years before Whitey gets out of prison. Each SAC charged with cultivating informants from the top tiers of organized crime. Another memo read, it is mandatory that the development of quality criminal informants be emphasized and the existing program be implemented and then greatly expanded. You are again reminded that the penetration and infiltration of organized criminal activity is a prime objective of the Bureau. And to accomplish this, it is necessary to give a renewed impetus to the development of quality criminal informants. Hoodlums, boys, crawl out into the sewers, get filthy, and bring home some scum. Each informant was given a code number when they were placed on the books. Each FBI office had their own set of numbers. BS for the Boston office, CG for Chicago, and so on. Then a number, 812, for example. Then either C for confidential informant or PC for potential confidential informant. When a source was made a uh, top echelon informant, the letters TE will be added at the end of the sequence. For example, Patriarcha Crime Family, Captain Vinny Teresa's number was BS 812C. TE. The code was supposed to protect the confidential informant from having their identity exposed as memos whizzed across the country between various FBI offices. Paul Rico was, an excellent, uh, was in an excellent position to benefit from the FBI's newly energized mandate. Already in his first decade as an agent, he had distinguished himself as a cultivator of informants. Born into a lower middle-class household of Portuguese, Italian, and Irish ancestry, he had ties to virtually all of the communities and underworlds In New England, he was sloppy with paperwork, but a convincing talker, so convincing that he quickly made contacts on all sides. It was his informant that had tipped him off as to the whereabouts of James Bolger back in 1957, leading to the young bank robber's arrest and imprisonment. Rico made sure to be polite to Whitey during the arrest, as I said, just in case he could recruit him later as an informant. In the late 60s, Rico would be particularly involved in an operation that brought down Raymond Patriarca, right, senior, the leader of the Italian mafia in Providence, and a huge crime boss just in Boston as well, you know, much of New England, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Back to Whitey. He was released March 1st, 1965, after spending nine years in prison. All that acid cut about a decade off his sentence. Uh, As a condition of his parole, he had to have a job, so his brother Billy got Whitey a position as a calliope player and a ring-toss barker at a carnival in Southie. (laughs) (laughs) Step aside, Whitey's ring-toss. Every ring tossed around a bottle wins a prize. If anyone caught cheating, I'll take a fucking brick back to your fucking skull. <laughs> no, sorry. Uh, I don't think I'll ever get tired of playing that collage track. Uh, no, Whitey got a job as a custodian. That makes more sense. At the Suffolk County Courthouse. Uh, kind of. Before long, Whitey stopped showing up for work, but still collected his paycheck. So he got a fake job from some folks who wanted to uh, rob and run rackets with somebody who, you know, was required legally to be gainfully employed. Almost immediately, he re-established ties with some fellow criminals, only now he was no longer interested in being a roving outlaw, a la John Dillinger. He wanted to be more of a mobster, with roots in the city's organized crime structure. Whitey returned to Boston, in the middle of one of the city's most infamous gang wars. We covered this one back in our Irish Mob episode, the war between the McLaughlin brothers from Charlestown versus the Winter Hill Gang, led by Buddy McLean. It started back on Labor Day, 1961, four years before Whitey's return, when George McLaughlin harassed the girlfriend of a winter hill gang member By harassed i mean he grabbed her fucking boob and for that transgression two winter hill gangsters beat him so fucking savagely they thought he was probably dead and then that beating led to a lot of murder for nearly a decade dead bodies turned up all over boston men were stabbed shot bludgeoned to death fucking bit mutilated at the time few of these killings were seriously investigated by police many were mob hits carried out by professional hitmen virtually untraceable Others, the FBI, knew who did it because uh, they had a hand in some of the murders. They didn't kill anyone directly, but they did tip off informants to greatly help them take out their rivals. Told them when and where some guys would be uh, in a good place to be, I don't know, fucking whacked. They served some dudes up on platters. So there was already, of course, corruption before Whitey showed up. In February of 1967, Life magazine published a six-page spread about the Boston gang wars, focusing on the McLean-McLaughlin feud which had resulted so far in 43 mob-related murders in less than a decade. That's a lot of bodies. A lot of dead hoodlums and scalawags. Thugs. Can't forget about the thugs. Uh, under the headline, the thugs squash each other one by one. They printed two full pages of mugshots of victims. Right, Our modern, morbid fascination with true crime, as I've said before, is nothing new. By the time the Life article appeared in print, Buddy McLean had been murdered, as had the Hughes, bro- uh, as had the Hughes brothers and all of the McLaughlin brothers, except for George, the man who started it all. In 1965, he was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. But even though the original factions were dead or behind bars now, violence still was spreading like a plague through the rest of Boston. Bulger needed to ally himself with someone if he wanted protection, and he did. He chose the Colleen Gang, named after their leader, Donald Colleen and his two brothers, Kenny and Eddie. Bulger was making mo- uh, money as muscle for the Colleens, who ran a sizable bookmaking and loan sharking uh, operation in the neighborhood. The Kleens became embroiled in a territorial dispute with the Mullen Gang when Whitey was a member, and the next gang war is now on, and Whitey needs to help take down the Mullen, gang, uh, the, the Mullen Gang if he wants to increase his income and his power. Before getting into how he did that, let's detour just for a second into Whitey's family life. After his release from prison, he was involved with former fashion model and waitress, Lindsay Sear, who eventually became his common-life wife uh, common lie wife in the 1960s. They have a son, Douglas Douglas Glenn. Whitey's only child who's born in 1967, but then the boy dies at the age of six from Rye syndrome, a rare but serious condition that causes confusion, swelling in the brain, a swelling in the brain, (laughs) and liver damage after experiencing a severe allergic reaction to aspirin. There's still no real effective treatment for this, uh, no real way to avoid it. From what I can tell, it's fucking super sad, super rare. Only about two kids a year in the U.S. get it. And when Douglas dies, Whitey is devastated. Before Douglas died, uh, he was loving life. He had a sexy lady, his son, was making good money and taking shit over by any means necessary. With Billy O'Sullivan, another bodyguard, hitman, hitman, hoodlum, scoundrel for the Killeens, uh, Whitey hatched a takeover scheme in 1969. The first step would be to kill a prominent Mullen gang member, Paul McGonigal. Uh, many years later, Kevin Weeks would describe this in his book. He said, one day while the gang war was still going on, Jimmy was driving down 7th Street in South Boston when he saw Polly driving towards him. Jimmy pulled up beside him, window to window, nose to nose, and called his name. As Polly looked over, Jimmy shot him right between the eyes. Only at that moment, just as he pulled the trigger, Jimmy realized it wasn't Polly. It was Donald, the most likable of the McGonagall brothers, the only one who wasn't involved in anything. Jimmy drove straight to Billy O'Sullivan's house on Savin Hill Avenue, told Billy O, who was at the stove cooking, I shot the wrong one. I shot Donald. Billy looked up from the stove and said, don't worry about it. He wasn't healthy anyway. He smoked. He would have gotten lung cancer. How do you want your pork chops? (laughs) These motherfuckers are just so casual about shooting people. Doesn't faze him in the least. Ah, fuck Billy. I just shot the wrong guy in the face. Don't sweat it, Jimmy. People die every day. That jerk off probably would have stepped in front of a bus or something. Soon anyway. Don't don't cry over spilled milk. And don't cry over shot bullets. What's done is done. Now come on. We got pork chops, Steve. Not eating my delicious pork chops ain't going to bring back no galoot too dumb to duck when you point a pistol in his face. It's all good, my friend. Uh, Billy, just a year older than Whitey, was like a, like a big brother, a mentor. And this murder, Whitey will not uh, be later charged for it. Not one of the 19 official members of his body count. So who the fuck knows how many guys this dude really ended up uh, killing. And then Bulger's mistake would have more serious consequences for, o- for O'Sullivan than it would for Whitey. Two years later, on March 28th, 1971, O'Sullivan will be gunned down in the street outside his house. The killing of Billy O was perpetrated by a trio of Mullen gang members, including Polly McGonagall, who sought as revenge for his brother's death. I wonder if Jimmy would be cool with him being shot instead of Whitey for that. Don't sweat it, Jimmy. Yeah, I'm dying. I'm bleeding out. What's done is done. Hey, I just made another batch of pork chops, my friend. No tears. Wipe your cheeks off with my tender, juicy pork chops. Eat one for me, my friend. Uh, back to 1969, following Whitey taking out Donald, the Mullen Killeen Killings keep coming. I'll say that five times fast. The Mullen Killeen Killings keep coming. The Mullen Killeen Killings keep coming. Uh, it was around this time that Pat and e, a Mullen gang member, we met back in the Irish mob suck and Whitey Bulger became arch enemies. No pork chops. We were beaten together between these two rapscallion hoodwinks. Uh, as rival gang members from the same area neighborhood, they were pitted against one another. One night outside the Mad Hatter, great name for a bar, once infamous bar located downtown, they traded gunfire in a wild shootout. Another time, Pat and had Bulger literally in his sights in an alleyway in Charlestown, but chose not to pull the trigger due to fear of retribution, since there were witnesses who could tie him to the murder of Billy Bulger's brother. He knew he wouldn't escape retribution. Whitey's politician brother saves his life here just by being who he was. When his mentor, O'Sullivan, was murdered on March 28, 1971, Whitey decides time to lay low for a while. He hides out on Cape Cod for about a year, Nice place to chill out from what I hear. By the spring of 72, he ventures back into Southie, but another high-profile killing is about where where another high-profile killing is about to take place. This time it was his boss, uh, Donald Killeen. Donnie Killeen, who was shot multiple times in a car outside his house in suburban Framingham. The murder was, of course, carried out by the Mullen Gang. And then Pat Nee, Whitey's arch enemy, arranges a sit-down between the various criminal factions of South Boston. Now let's check in with our friends at the FBI while all this is going on, they'll start to court Whitey. In the early 70s, Paul Rico was transferred to a field office in Miami. He maintains contact with his old partner, Dennis Condon, who was more active than ever in the FBI's ongoing battle against organized crime. What has started out as the McLean-McLaughlin gang war in the mid and late 60s, uh, shifted to the Colleen mullen gang war of the early 70s. Condon, along with Rico, had served as the handler for a variety of informants from Charlestown and Somerville, including Flemmie, but they still didn't have a major informant in South Boston. And that's where Whitey comes into the picture. He seemed like the perfect informant. He was well-spoken, a physical fitness buff, had a good sense of discipline, loved pork chops, did a fuck ton of acid. Uh, Also, he seemed to have, uh, you know, seemed to have enough sense to understand how beneficial this arrangement would be. In May of 1971, Condon meets with Bulger. That same month, he opens a confidential file on the gangster. After a few secret meetings between the two, Condon becomes frustrated. And in an internal FBI memo dated July 7th, 1971, he wrote, no go. Potential CI does not, in fact, like pork chops. He's a hoodlum, but one who is constantly hallucinating, not stable enough for CI work. First time we met, he made me uh, promise him that I wasn't a dragon. And when I promised I wasn't a dragon, he kept asking me, are you sure you're not a dragon? And then he'd ask again a few seconds later, as if we'd never discussed it. This went on for several minutes. Then for another several minutes, he kept having me reassure him that he was also not a dragon. Uh, No, he said contact with this informant on this occasion was not overly productive, and it felt that he still has some inhibitions about furnishing information. Additional contacts will be had with him, and if his productivity does not increase, consideration will be given to closing him out. So why he doesn't initially really jump at the chance to work with the FBI? I do think before he became one, he actually did hate a rat. This was a struggle for him, right? Probably, uh, Probably, I don't know, hated rats after he became a rat as well. People can have all sorts of hypocritical beliefs. Uh, after only three months as a hopeful informant bulger is officially terminated from the program it seemed that condon just didn't have rico's gifts for developing relationships bulger wasn't the only recruit he had trouble landing if they wanted to keep the informant program operating they needed a new star agent there was a strong potential candidate a young agent who'd been born and raised in the same housing project as whitey his name john Connolly. Connolly was connected to the bulger family a former english teacher at southie or excuse me at south boston high school He had actually joined the FBI in 1968, partially on the advice of Billy Bulger, which is one of his uh, childhood friends. In order to expedite his confirmation as an agent, Billy had helped Connolly secure a letter of recommendation from Speaker of the House, John McCormack, who we heard of earlier. Same politician, right, who wrote letters to federal prison authorities on behalf of Whitey. It's all connected. Connolly had worked on Billy Bulger's initial campaign for state representative and remained a vocal supporter of Southeast's rising political star. Since 1970, he'd been assigned to an organized crime squad in New York City, but now he wants to come back home to Boston. 1972, Rico gets a hot tip via Jack from Boston, that is, Steve Flemmi. While on the lam, Flemmi had had a fallen out with Frank Salemi, who was a hazard of the profession, two hoodlums entangled together, cooped up in motel rooms and on long drives. Fighting was to be expected. Plus, they committed a murder together while on the run in the Nevada desert, and their partnership took a bad turn since uh, both were now nervous about the other ratting on them. Flemmi headed to Montreal um or excuse me Sal- Salemi hun- uh <laughs> headed to montreal flemy uh hunkered down with his contacts in new york city uh by this time excuse me i had that backwards sorry a little, a little misprint my notes uh we had god damn it flemy goes to montreal fucking salemi <laughs> goes to new york city's fucking names uh by this time frank salemi is a 10 most wanted uh fugitive when flemy tells rico that cadillac frank As he's also called, is in New York, uh, where John Connolly had just happened to be stationed with the FBI organized crime squad. Rico seized on the opportunity to help his fellow agent. And the FBI uh, devises a scheme so that Connolly can apprehend Salemi, but it has to look good. It couldn't be an arrest based on Connolly receiving info from someone else. It had to appear as if Connolly himself apprehended Salemi just solely on his own initiative, so that Connolly could then get a promotion and get sent back to Boston. The official story was so simple it seemed fake. On a snowy day in December 1972, Connolly's walking down a street in midtown Manhattan, happens to spot Frank Salemi, chases down the top, you know, the 10 most wanted fugitive on the street, cuffs him, places him under arrest. The FBI then fudges some paperwork to make the narrative look the way they wanted. Uh, They will do so much more of that with Whitey. Meanwhile, a big criminal underworld meeting takes place in 1972 at Chandler's now, a bar located at the corner of Dartmouth and Chandler streets in the city's South End. Typical bar for working men and hoodlums and off-duty cops present at the meeting is Howie Winter who had taken over as the leader of the Winter Hill gang when Buddy McLean got murdered a coincidence as far as his name goes Winter Hill's a neighborhood nothing to do with Howie Winter as far as i can tell unless some ancestor of Howie not mentioned in sources was the hill's namesake namesake also in attendance John Russo a mafioso who represented the Italian North End had links to the patriarcha crime family in providence Pat Nee represented the Mullen gang Bulger was there as a representative of the Colleen gang, which was now led by Kenny Killeen. The purpose was to establish a power sharing framework, right? A way where everyone could get back to make money instead of senselessly killing one another. But fucking Kenny Killeen, not into the plan. Uh, he said he would never willingly turn over his gang's lucrative bookmaking business without a fight. Bookmaking or being a bookie was very lucrative for Kenny and his crew. It was the only way to bet on sports in New England back then. A gambler would place a wager with a bookie The bookie typically charged a 10% commission. Often a bookie worked as an agent for a larger uh, bookmaker, a criminal gang, or the mafia. The agency covered the bookie's winnings and losings. If a bookie's customer won big, the agency would cover the payment. But the bookie was placed on makeup then, meaning he had to pay that money back out of future proceeds. Also, a fair amount of these uh, illegal bookies would skew the betting odds in favor, uh, you know, in their favor to make sure that they generally came out ahead. And a good bookie can make a lot of money. And Kenny Killeen was in charge of all the bookies in Southie, cutting the rest of the criminal underworld off from a valuable source of cash. Despite his reluctance to share that money, the mobsters still wanted to make a truce. The meeting at Chandler's lasted nearly eight hours. Mobsters ate and drank and worked things out until they reached uh, an agreement, or at least thought they did. Whitey left the meeting less than pleased. He left convinced his boss fucked up when he wouldn't share the, uh, the bookie situation and that he had to go. A few weeks later, he lets him know. Kenny's walking past a car at City Point when a voice calls out, hey, Kenny. Colleen turned to see uh, the familiar face of his buddy, Whitey, in the passenger side window holding the gun. It's over, says Bulger. You out of business. No future warnings. And then the car drives off. And just like that, Whitey had taken out the Colleen gang. Kenny took the out. Now having provided a valuable service to the other mobsters, Whitey finds himself in a new, higher standing within the city's underworld. He and some buddies now start hanging out with the Winter Hill gang, a gang he will eventually take over in a garage in Somerville called Marshall Motors, their new headquarters. From the new headquarters, uh, Whitey and his new associate, Steve Flemmie began to corral all of the non-affiliated bookies in town and demand that they pay tribute to the Winter Hill Gang. Steve Flemmie will be uh, Whitey's longtime right-hand man now. A Roxbury native, Stephen J. Flemmie got his nickname the Rifleman during the Korean War when he was an uncanny marksman in the Army. And that was a skill that, not surprisingly, will come in handy for his criminal work. In the 1960s, Flemmi developed a close ties to both Irish and Italian gangsters, befriending mafia boss Francis Cadillac Frank Salemi, who we met, and earning a reputation as a cold-blooded operative. He later joined up with the Somerville's uh, Winter Hill Gang. And in 1965, he made another important associate, the FBI. He made this associate through his brother, Vincent Jimmy the Bear. Jimmy the Bear Flemmi! Recruited to the FBI in March of 1964. And yes, his name was Vincent but his nickname was Jimmy the Bear, not Vinny the Bear. That fucking threw me for a second. His middle name was James. I was hoping it was Ronald or something, totally unrelated to Jimmy. You know? Jamal Anthony Westbrook, aka Jimmy the Bear. Uh, March 9th, a memo was uh, sent from the special agent in charge of the Boston Field office to, to uh director Hoover, and it stated: Jimmy Fleming is suspected of a number of gangland murders. And has told the informant of his plans to be recognized as the number one hitman in this area as a contract killer. Fleming told the informant that all he wants to do now is kill people. And that it is better than hitting banks. Informant said Flemy said he can now be the best hitman in the area and intends to be. And the memo further stated Flemy is going to continue to commit murder. But informant's potential, uh, potential outweighs the risk involved. <laughs> So uh, Hoover authorizes Jimmy Fleming's role as a top echelon informant, knowing he's a homicidal maniac whose stated goal is to become the biggest hitman in Boston. Look, everyone, Jimmy the Bear is going to kill people. A lot of fucking people. Now that he's Jimmy here. Many of them uh, will likely be innocent people who ended up uh, in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I don't like it. He's a fucking savage. But if we let him kill with impunity, we can take down a bunch of people betting illegally on sports. Uh, and I guess it wasn't you know, Jimmy there, was Steve. Steve officially becomes an informant on March 12th, the same day, the other brother, Vinny, will kill again. His target is Edward Teddy Deegan. Uh, Deegan was connected to the powerful New York City-based Bono, uh, oh, there we go, Banano. The Banano crime family. The banano crime family. He'd grown up in Boston's West End, became a career criminal. His extensive police record would go back to 1948 when he was arrested and charged with larcency, uh, larceny. Throughout the 1950s and 60s, Deegan was arrested and charged with break-ins and armed robberies. And in 1959, he was uh, sentenced to six months at the Norfolk County House of Correction. By the 60s, Deegan had become a mainstay of the Boston underworld. And at 11 p.m., March 12, 1965, Edward Deegan's body was found lying on his back covered in blood with a 12-inch screwdriver near his left hand in an alleyway in Chelsea, Massachusetts. Police reports revealed that Deegan was gunned down at approximately 9.30 while trying to break into a Chelsea finance company's office building guess that's where the screwdriver came in. He was shot six times. Police believe three different weapons were involved, one .45 caliber and two caliber guns. Within hours of Deegan's death, the Boston field office sent a morandum, memorandum to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover identifying Joseph Barboza, Vincent Flemmy, Ronald Ronnie the Pig, uh, Casesso, and Wilfred Roy French as present in the alley at the scene of the crime. Ronnie the Pig. Not sure how he got that nickname. Wasn't a huge dude. One news article referred to his nickname as being descriptive, though. Maybe he was uh, called a pig as a kid or something. Maybe a bunch of feral fucking pigs fucked his family to death. I don't know. Both Barboza and Flemmi were informants, so they managed to escape prosecution. On July 31st, 1968, the court convicted Louis Greco, Henry Tamello, Ronnie Cassesso, fucking Petey Lamoni, uh, of Deegan's murder and sentenced them to the death penalty. Joey Salvati. Roy French were sentenced to life imprisonment as accessories to Deegan's murder. Uh, Louis Greco, Henry Tamalo, uh, Tama- uh, Peter Limoni, and Joseph Silvati uh, would later be exorated, exonerated completely. They were simply the FBI's fall guys to keep their informants out of prison. In 2007, many years later, a landmark decision ordered the, U- the U.S. government to pay over $100 million, $101.7 million, to the accused and their families for wrongful convictions uh, where the FBI knowingly put these dudes in prisons for crimes they didn't commit to protect their CIs. Again, the FBI was doing crooked shit before Whitey showed up. A precedent had been set years earlier of doing illegal shit on behalf of your CI. But getting ahead of myself, it was the brother of the homicidal maniac, the even more homicidal Steve Fleming, who was now helping Whitey put pressure on some new bookies they wanted to work with. And they did apply some serious pressure. If he didn't pay rent, you'd be out of business. Your family would be threatened. You might be murdered in a very violent manner to serve as a warning to other bookies. But there were also benefits to working with Whitey and the Winter Hill gang. If you as a bookie had a problem with a customer or a fellow bookie, the the gang would take care of it. And if the gang had, uh, and the uh, gang also had a way to launder proceeds, right, which was a, a problem for a lot of bookies. Winter Hill member Michael London ran a check cashing business and was always willing to cash checks made out by gamblers to John Hancock or Babe Ruth. So the bookies grumbled, but they also paid up, even if they resented the terms. Uh, One man, Chico Krantz, uh, definitely resented the arrangement. Remember his name. It'll come up later. Uh, Excuse me. For most of the bookies, it was a convenient partnership, right? Jimmy Katz was arrested and charged with crimes like wire fraud, violating bank laws. But his arrest was an exception. The Winter Hill Gang typically had enough muscle to get bookies out of trouble. Uh, Richard Dickey O'Brien. Gotta get some dick in the suck. And of course, in this episode, it's Dickey. Uh, Another bookie. And why is it around Boston, (laughs) at least decades ago? It wasn't John, James, Dick, Tom, Frank. It was fucking Jimmy, Tommy, Timmy, Frankie, Whitey. It was like there was some quota that had to be filled where 75% of dudes' names have to end in Y or or, or the sound of Y. And I love it. Sometimes I wish I would have stuck with Danny, right? All my childhood friends, family call me Danny. Instead of switching to Dan, because my third grade teacher thought Danny sounded like a baby's name. Fucking Danny's way more fun than Dan. Fucking Danny talks a lot. Fucking Danny sucks some shit. Uh, anyway, by the time by the time Dickie would testify about his activities, he'd be 85 years old, wheelchair bound and using an oxygen tank. Uh, he'd graduated Quincy High School, class of 1947, way before those days. After joining the army and serving a year in Korea during the war, O'Brien returned to Massachusetts and utilized the GI Bill Attended Boston University. That didn't last long. O'Brien dropped out of college, went to work with his father, also a bookie uh, who'd been in business since the 30s. By the late 50s, when Dickie became involved, his father had his own office in Boston's South End. Dickey worked as an agent for his father, who in turn worked under uh, a big-time bookmaker named Bernard McGarry. Fucking Bernie. Uh, Bernie Dallas. Later on the stand, Dickie would explain his role. He said, as an agent, you go out on the street and you get play. People want to gamble. They'll bet numbers. They'll bet horses. They'll bet sports. They'll call it into their office, which my father and I, we ran that office. And you saw to it that if they won, they were paid promptly. Now, the payment arrangements would be if the agent had a winning week with sports and horses, he would receive 50% of what he won. The other 50% would go to the office. So we would collect what was coming to us. And of course, the agent would keep what was coming to them. Now, the office obligation was to pay whatever the agent lost. So say that he lost $5,000 for the week. Well, the office paid the $5,000. That $5,000 would be set aside called makeup. Until the agent won that 5000 back and got the office even, he wouldn't receive a commission. So it was an unwritten law that you stayed with an office. The office paid a certain amount of money to keep you in business. You stayed with them and you tried to work it off. It's a pretty good arrangement for the bookie's office, right? If you win a bet for the office, 50% of the win goes to the office, big cut. And if you lose, the office does cover the loss, but now you don't keep shit of your winnings in the future until you're fucking square with the office. And the office would uh, pay a, you know, a cut to whatever gang was protecting them. And the gang would make sure that the bookies who left the office with debts not worked out would be taken care of. And anyone who lost bets that hadn't paid up, also taken care of. Dickie wouldn't get involved with the real criminal underworld until 1960, when his dad suffered a heart attack that led to his retirement. A friend put him in touch with the patriarchal family in Providence. Thanks to the godfather of New England, O'Brien is assigned as an agent with uh, the Angelo or Angelo. And Julo brothers in the North End, and he was officially working with the Mafia. Now that lasted for eight years until 1968, when uh, Genero Jerry Angelo was indicted on a murder charge. In the movie Black Mass, where Johnny Depp plays Whitey Bulger, uh, there's a great scene where Whitey beats the shit out of Jerry's nephew Joey. Uh, but back to Dickie. After Jerry goes away, he's once again without protection. Then he receives a message from a fellow bookie that there's a there's a dude in South Boston who wants to speak with him and it was Whitey Bulger. They meet at a bar called Kimberly's and Quincy. Bulger tells him in so many words that he thought Dickey should work with the Winter Hill Gang. For Dickey, it turned out to be a, a bad arrangement. Unlike the mafia, the Winter Hill Gang had no interest in establishing an office so that bookies under their umbrella could lay off bets. Uh, the only interest that Winter Hill, the Winter Hill Gang had was in collecting rent from bookies, numbers runners, loan sharks, and other racketeers within their domain. Dicky made payments of $2,000 a week to Bulger, hand-delivered in a brown paper envelope at Triple O's Lounge, at the South Boston Liquor Mart. One of many bookies, no exact numbers given, given two grand in cash every week to the gang, 104 grand a year. Pretty good business. Whitey would later take over the South Boston Liquor Mart completely so he didn't have to collect payments in someone else's establishment by threatening to have the owner, Stephen Rakes, killed. That's a great way to get real estate that you want. Hey, uh, how's about you sell me this place? Nah, Whitey, it's not not for sale. Let me ask you again. How about you sell me this place or I fucking kill you? I fucking take it from you and uh uh you fucking goes on and you will i'll fucking take it from uh anybody you give this place to you motherfucker uh yeah you're sorry sorry I, I didn't hear you right the first time i'd love to sell you this place uh, how does free sound well soon dickie will realize just how powerful Whitey he can be at one point dickie has an incident with another bookie georgie georgie Lebat, who worked for him he'd run up a considerable amount of makeup meaning dickie had to pay thousands of dollars to keep him in business and then georgie disappears Bulger decides to find him. He arranges a meeting for Dickie and George. Uh, they meet in a bar where Whitey shows up and asks George, will you treat it right by Dickie? You would treat it good, right? And George nods. Whitey goes, then what are you doing? You owe him a big amount of money and makeup, but you stop calling him. He doesn't have a chance to make his money back. George said he will uh, take care of the makeup, but after that, he wants to strike out on his own. And then I guess Whitey raised an eyebrow and said, you know, we have another business besides bookmaking, killing assholes like you. Not subtle. Imagine someone like Whitey Bulger saying that to you. It's terrifying. So, you know, George keeps working with Dickie. Uh, Such a simple plan. Whitey and his crew. Man, same plan as so many other gangsters make protection money. Hey, uh, you're going to give us money to protect your business from other people like us who might bother you one day or, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to fucking kill you. Uh, I found the most random Whitey Bulger trivia, uh, at least to me, watching a bunch of videos online before diving into written research to really get my head around all this. Uh, this feels like a good place to drop this trivia in the timeline here. I'm guessing you have heard of Dana White, president of the UFC, biggest uh, mixed martial arts, professional fighting organization in the world. White would have likely never gotten involved in the world of MMA, or definitely not with the UFC, which he would end up running, had it not been for fleeing Boston for fear of Whitey Bulger and his goons, his hoodlums, having him killed in the early 90s when he was in his uh, early 20s. Dana got into boxing when he was 17. A few years later, partners with Peter Welsh, a local fighter, they partner in Boston, When he's around 20 years old, the two men start a program to keep troubled kids out of court and out of jail called the Muni in Southie, right? In Whitey's Hood. Uh, Muni is in municipal court. Boston was very segregated at this time. They took kids in from different neighborhoods for free, taught them to respect each other through letting them spar together. And, uh, you know, the kids loved it. But since the program didn't make any, uh, any money, you know, Dana loved it. To pay the bills, they started giving private boxing lessons to businessmen and women, housewives, right? Random dudes looking to get tough, etc. Pretty soon their schedules are are full. Lots of demand. So now they expand and they start uh, teaching boxing classes. They start bringing these boxing group classes to area gyms and those classes get popular. And so they're making, you know, some decent money, just starting to. And one day Dana is teaching class in the Boston Athletic Club. And in the middle of his class, some members of Bulger's gang walk into the middle of the class wearing street clothes and tell Dana, we need to talk to you. And he's like, I I'm in the middle of class. He has no idea who these guys are. And they don't care. They're like, we need to talk now. So Dana leaves class to talk to him, thinking that maybe they're the gym owners or something. No idea who they are still. Uh, then one of the men says he's Kevin Weeks, one of Bulger's lieutenants, a guy who would also work as his bodyguard, tough dude, a fucking killer. And Kevin straight up told Dana that they wanted some money, a couple thousand of protection money. Dana ended up ignoring that initial request, doesn't confront him, doesn't start shit, just chooses to act like they'd never come back. Well, a week or so later, he's uh, sitting in his apartment, gets a phone call uh, on his landline. He'd never given his fucking number to any of these guys. One of these guys is on the other end of the, uh, the line saying that uh, they want their money. They want $2,500. When Dana says he doesn't have it, they tell him, well, he better fucking figure something out because he has until tomorrow, Sunday, 1 p.m. to come up with that money or else. Dana said he immediately bought a plane ticket after that phone call, abandoned his business, a successful growing business, and just left Boston. Just fucking bounced. By 1 p.m. the next day, moved to Vegas where he made connections that led to him uh, to the UFC, the organization that made him a household name and insanely wealthy. He's now 53 years old and supposedly worth over half a billion dollars. Dude must have hated walking away from a growing business, uh, but you know, he wouldn't have to worry about Whitey in Vegas. And he ended up building, you know, back up stronger. Good for him. Fucking love that story. Also the balls on Whitey and his crew, just walking up to whoever's running a local business in their neighborhood and just saying like, Hey, you owe us money. It's insane, right? They're just threatening people with death if they don't pay. Anyway, Dickie did not run away. He understood that if he wanted to work as a bookie in Boston, he would have to work with Whitey or the equivalent. Around this time, with the new confederation of gangsters set out to maximize profits, the group decides to take out a dude known as Indian Al. Howie Winter, Bulger, and others took on this task as an assignment from Jerry Angelou, right? Mafia boss in Boston. Indian Al, aka Al Nataranjali, and his crew had made it known that they were going to take over Angelo's sports betting book, or Angelo's. Uh, they'd already murdered one of Angelo's bookmakers, a mafioso named Polly Felino. Fucking Polly! Not a name that ends in Y, but sounds the same. I love it. Jimmy, Johnny, fucking Jerry, Dickie, Whitey, Polly, fat fucking Tony. Skinny fucking Eddie. Regular size Wally. Little thick up top, but skips leg days. Everyday Vinny. Thunder thigh, but noodle on manny. Fucking big-ass but skinny thigh, fat calf having fat-calf-having-skinny-ankle-regular-sized-foot Danny Baloney. Uh, since none of them are close to uh, Nottarangeli, they first had to develop info on his daily routine. You know, what he looked like, where he lived, what kind of car he drives. They learned that Al drives a brown Mercedes, often frequents a bar called Mother's Cafe, located near Boston Garden, where the Bruins played hockey, where the Celtics won a string of championships. On the night of March 8th, 1973, the Winter Hill crew received word that Nottarangeli was at mother's drinking with some friends so they arrive in two cars winter is in one of them in this car were two machine guns and a backup car is bulger bulger has a police scanner so that he can track police whereabouts in the area smart also all the gangsters have walkie-talkies they're in constant communication you even have a lookout inside mother's to notify them when indian Al is going to be leaving the premises they received that message around two in the morning the person identified as Al, their target exits the bar with a couple friends a woman another dude The target gets into the brown Mercedes in the front seat behind the wheel with the woman in the passenger seat, uh, front passenger seat, guy in the back, and the Winter Hill hit team follows. A couple blocks away, the car with Winter in it drives up. The two machine guns blast away. The driver and the male passenger are hit. The female survives. It's an outrageous gangland drive-by. The problem was Al wasn't in the car. All that planning, and they still fucked up. Their spotter identified the wrong person. Right, the gangsters now uh, kill a kid uh, named Michael Milano, a bartender at Mother's, probably one by Mikey, a completely innocent 23-year-old with no criminal affiliations. Right, With Whitey, killing the wrong person seems to be a somewhat common occurrence. Y'all eat some fucking pork chops, tell each other not to worry about it, and they go on with their lives. The passenger was his coworker, uh, Louis, and Lewis's girlfriend, a dietitian at Beth Israel Hospital named Diane. And later, Diane would testify I turned around to ask Lewis how he was, and he was slumped forward. His eyes were glazed and he barely shook his head. I heard a very low noise of no. Having been trained in a hospital, I knew I couldn't do anything. So I put my hand on the horn and just figured someone would hear it. Uh, Some cop cars arrive soon, along with ambulances. Diane realizes that she had also been shot. Uh, Her arm is drenched in blood. At the hospital, she'll discover that Lewis survived, but was paralyzed. Concerned for her safety, Diane now leaves Boston and moves to Seattle. Lewis will live for another 28 years as a quadriplegic on a respirator. More collateral damage I got. I doubt those guys gave a shit about. Winter Hill Gang still had not gotten their guy, and they will end up taking out additional people before they do. Frank Frankie Capizzi found himself caught up in the Winter Hill mob's murderous hunt for Indian Al Natarangeli. Fucking Frankie Calzone. Frankie French Fry. Frankie Ferret Wrangler. Frankie Filipino Pony Breeder. I have no idea if this dude had a nickname or not uh in Frankie maybe nickname maybe not Capizzi's case he was in a car one night with a couple of members of not Arangeli's crew Al Bud Plummer and Hugh Sonny Shields right if you if you don't have a name that ends in a Y or IE you just fucking give yourself a nickname that does uh they just pulled up to a stoplight at the intersection of commercial and Hanover streets in the heart of the city's north end Capizzi felt safe on Hanover street he'd been born and raised in a cold water flat at 452 Hanover on the exact corner where he now sat in the back seat of Al Plummer's car This was his neighborhood. His parents had come here from the same town in Sicily, only they didn't know that until they met on Hanover Street. Frank had joined the U.S. Coast Guard in 1952 and then found himself stationed at a facility located on Hanover Street at the corner of Commercial in Hanover. and Hanover. Then he became a made member of La Casa Nostra. And the night he was sitting in Al Plummer's car, March 19th, 1973, the last thing I bet he expected was to be shot, uh, you know, uh, at for two minutes in a hail of machine gun fire. But that's what happened. Frank was hit in the head, could feel warm blood running down his neck and back, uh, but there was a more excruciating, or where there was more excruciating pain, but he was lucky compared to Plummer. Plummer's head was obliterated by bullets. Frankie was rushed to the hospital, had emergency sur- surgery, which did save his life. And then he left the city of his birth and never returned. So many people just fleeing because of these dudes. All in all, the Winter Hill Gang will kill four wrong people before they kill the correct target here. Fucking pork chops, you guys. Lots of pork chops. Uh, now continue with 1973. That year, FBI agent Connolly is allowed to select his new city for his daring apprehension of a high profile criminal so of course he chooses Boston that's the plan and he will be assigned there to the C3 unit Paul Rico's old stomping grounds and now his task is to bring Whitey Bulger into the fold subsequent legends will state that Connolly approached Bulger and that seated together in a car at Quincy's uh uh at Quincy's this restaurant they chat about uh how a mutual arrangement will I'm sorry not a restaurant at Quincy's Wollaston, one of the few words I have about a fucking million pronunciation guides in this one, but I don't have a one for uh, Wollaston. I don't know. Uh, w o l l a s t o n Beach at Quincy's Wollaston Beach in a car. They chat about a mutual arrangement, how it would work to both of their advantages. This story, first made public in the book Black Mass by former Boston Globe reporters Dick Lear and Gerard O'Neill, it is clear in its suggestion that Connolly alone is the man convinced, who convinced Bulger that he should work for the Department of Justice. He seems to have formally agreed after some courting at some point in 1974. Helping him make up his mind uh, was Steve Flemmy, Bulger's partner, right? That uh, guy who was already an informant. Guessing Steve was fucking nervous to uh, admit that to Whitey. For going on several years now, Steve had benefited from partnering with the FBI. He'd been tipped off uh, on indictments so he could get out of town from time to time. And as we saw, virtually able to murder whomever he wanted. Murder with impunity, that sold Whitey. It was time to join up with the feds. And now Whitey Bulger, with the immunity, starts eliminating some of his rivals in Boston, beginning with members of the Mullen Gang. Over a period of 12 months, from November 1974 to November of 1975, Bulger and his associates murder three members. Uh, Once these three bodies have been buried underground, Whitey was almost the mob boss of South Boston. Howie Winter still technically is running the Winter Hill Gang, but that's about to come to an end. November of 1974, Bulger murders Polly McGonigal, Uh, the man whose twin brother, Bulger, murdered years ago. He was preventing the McGonagall family from ever getting revenge. The crime would be Bulger's trademark, devious and effective. On the day before McGonagall's death, Bulger went to the bank and withdrew cash, all fresh, crisp bills, enough to fill a briefcase. He showed the money to McGonagall, claiming that the the bills were counterfeit. McGonagall was impressed. Bulger and McGonagall make an arrangement to meet the following day. McGonagall wants to purchase some of the counterfeit bills. They meet the next day, seated in Bulger's car, Whitey opens the briefcase, Polly thinks he's about to be uh, shown the money. Instead, Bulger reveals a gun and then he shoots Polly in the fucking face. Next Mullen uh, gang member that Bulger kills is Tommy King, another prominent member of the gang. He convinces other members of the Winter Hill gang to go along with the plan because he said he'd heard that King was threatening to kill a detective named Eddie Walsh. And Walsh was practically a member of the underworld, a cop who had close associations with many Southie gangsters. Killing Walsh would open up a can of worms, make other law enforcement agencies look closer at his associates. So the Winter Hill gang agrees. At the time, Tommy King believes that he's in a partnership with Bulger, which is why when Whitey told him that he needed his, his assistance in tracking down and killing a criminal rival named Alan Suitcase Fiddler. <laughs> okay, King was gay. Uh, that's a funny nickname. Uh, <laughs> suitcase doesn't sound very tough, but I'm sure there's a cool story. Behind. He meets with Bulger, gang leader, Howie Winter, and an associate of theirs named Johnny Matarano. Fucking Johnny Two Legs, Johnny Nine Toes. Johnny Seven Ball on the Corner Pocket on the Side Rail. Uh, they were all seated in Bulger's car with Steve Fleming behind him in the, in a crash car. Flemmy handed out guns to everyone. What King didn't know was that the chamber of the gun he was handed was filled with blanks and he was seated in the passenger seat. Pretty much as soon as they pull out from behind him in the back seat, Johnny Matarano shoots Tommy King in the back of the head execution style. Bye-bye business partner. On that very same night, the King is killed. Bulger, uh, seeks out a third Mullen member, Francis Buddy Leonard. Fucking Buddy Bugle. Buddy Butterscotch. Buddy the Elf. Uh, Bulger had a beef with Leonard mostly because of his drunken behavior in the neighborhood. Bulger was not a big drinker, never used drugs of any kind. He frowned on drunkenness, frowned on drug use. He smiled on wanted murder, but he frowned on too much whiskey. He had an interesting moral compass. Part of his plan for taking over a boss of the neighborhood was attempting to instill a more rigorous code of personal behavior among Southie gangsters. Buddy was not down with that, so Whitey has to pay him some... Uh, personal attention that night just a few hours after killing king bulger finds buddy leonard shoots him in the head then takes leonard's body puts it in king's car to make it appear as if king had killed buddy and he spreads the word amongst other mullen members that tommy king had played a role in the murder of polly mcgonigal that put tommy on the outs with the remaining mullen gang members the entire time throughout these murders whitey is working with the fbi and john Connolly, and wrapping Connolly around his finger. Immediately after the dual killings of King and Leonard, Bulger has Connolly input disinformation into FBI 302s, confidential intelligence files, that King had murdered Buddy Leonard, left him in the car, and skedaddled. This is the beginning of a sneaky pattern of misdirection orchestrated by Bulger and his corrupt enablers in law enforcement. Excuse me, as an informant, he fed them information that helped cover up his murders, and his FBI associates willingly put his lies into his files, making truth out of complete fiction. Now all that was left is to bury the bodies. And all of the Winter Hill Gang members will be called upon to, uh, to be on grave digger duty. Polly McGonigal is buried in a grave at uh, Tennyan Beach in Dorchester. Who had helped dig that hole? Well, Tommy King dug a grave for someone else right before he got killed. Almost a year later, Tommy's buried nearby. why do he does all this before becoming the boss of the Winter Hill Gang? When he's uh, more kind of part of a ruling board, a coalition, he had a willingness to kill, but so did other gangsters. But they didn't have, as he rose to power, his connections. No one dared to hit back at him for killings because of his brother. The politician fearing that Billy would bring on a level of heat that would wipe out the city's criminal rackets. And of course, there are connections in play that his gangster cohorts, fellow hoodlums, scalawags, and scoundrels don't know about, the FBI and John Connolly. Connolly even helped Bulger when it came to uh, criminal rackets. For example, Connolly intervened in a dispute between a vending company called Melatone and Bulger and Fleming. The two gangsters started their own vending company because why not? I can make more money and uh, have been going all over town threatening bar owners who installed Melaton vending machines instead of their machines. Again, such a simple business plan. Hey, uh, how about you take our machine over here? I don't know. I like the machine I got. How about I fucking kill your family? You hey, Take my machine over there and put it over there. Uh, the company approached the FBI to see if there was a criminal case to be made against Bulger and Flemmy and that was the wrong move. Connolly handled the complaint personally, assuring Melotone lawyers it would not be in their best interest to pursue legal action. And so they don't. He's effectively now a frontman for Whitey's gang on the inside of federal law enforcement, saving them time and money. On another occasion, and you know, uh, prison sentences. On another occasion, Connolly gives Bulger information that allows the Winter Hill mob to eliminate another informant in their midst. Richie Castucci. Richie the Jackal. Richie the Wolf. Richie the Pomeranian, Richie the Silky, Richie the old miniature Chihuahua with two gimpy fucking legs and very watery eyes and a lot of nervous stomach problems and anxiety. Uh, Bolcher and the other gangsters were especially impressed by this because in giving up Castucci, a registered FBI top echelon informant, Connolly signaled that his loyalty to the gang was more important than his loyalty to the FBI. This is nuts, right? Led another top informant to their literal slaughter to help his top informant become a better gangster. 1977, Connolly introduced Jim Bolger to his new supervisor at the Organized Crime Squad, Squad also in the C3 unit, John Morris. Johnny, Johnny Straight Lace. Johnny by the book. Johnny never upsets mommy, always does what he's told. John was from the Midwest with a personality that was opposite of John, Johnny Jackknife Connolly, who was highly personable and street smart. Morris was soft-spoken, plain, couldn't have passed for streetwise if he tried. Uh, but he tried to use his strengths as a team player and company man following orders to the letter to get ahead. He arrived in Boston from the Miami field office, brought with him a reputation as one of the best no-nonsense supervisors in the FBI. This signaled a brand new turn in Whitey's relationship with Connolly. Even as informants, most gangsters were reluctant to meet with anyone in law enforcement outside of their direct handler, trying to minimize exposure. But Bulger and Connolly had entered into a relationship that was not your typical gangster handler arrangement. They were more like associates, partners, two men who saw each other as an opportunity to enhance their standing within their chosen careers. Whitey's codename for Connolly was Zip because they lived in the same zip code. Uh, through Zip, they also call him Zippy. Oh, Zippy! Uh, Bulger got to know nearly every agent in the FBI's organized crime unit, including Morris, the supervisor. And he didn't stop there. In December of 1978, Zip introduced Bulger to Jeremiah O'Sullivan, another Irish-American and also lead prosecutor of the organized crime squad. This meeting had a sense of urgency. A few months earlier, Bulger had been abruptly dropped as a top echelon informant for a little bit when it was announced to the FBI that he was now the target of a federal investigation. Being the target of a criminal probe disqualified someone from being an informant. Bulger and Steve Flemmi were under a massive investigation now for fixing horse races at tracks throughout the Northeast. You can murder all you want, Whitey, even when you constantly accidentally kill the wrong people. What you cannot do is fix horse races, you motherfucker. Uh, This investigation wasn't anything that was going to go away soon. A coalition of prosecutors from different jurisdictions had banded together to launch the investigation and found that a sprawling web of criminals, led by Howie Winter, had bought off jockeys and fixed races at eight different tracks in five different states. Their source was an informant named Anthony Fat Tony Suella, actual nickname, a Boston mafiosi who had actually helped devise the scheme with Winter. Uh, the racket had been going strong for nearly four years, from 74 to 78, and they had netted more than $8 million from it. In the fall of 1978, Fat Tony testified in front of a grand jury in New Jersey. Federal indictments for Whitey and others now seemed imminent. And now Connolly, along with John Morris, were worried that their best informants were about to be locked up for the foreseeable future and people who could incriminate uh, at least Connolly at this point. So Connolly introduced Whitey to Jeremiah O'Sullivan, lead prosecutor in the case. It went against FBI informant handling regulations for the agents to reveal the identity of an active informant to anyone, especially a federal prosecutor. But these were special circumstances. Connolly argued that Bolger and Flemmi represented the FBI's best chance for making a major case against Jerry Angelo and the mafia, which become the number one priority for the Boston field office. The agents explained all this to Sullivan, O'Sullivan, who shared their dream of a major case targeting the Angelo brothers. Uh, O'Sullivan told the agents he would look into it and get back to them. And then he said he would meet with Whitey. The men met in a hotel room on a rainy afternoon around Christmas. And whatever Whitey said to that dude, it worked. After the meeting in January of 79, O'Sullivan agreed to drop charges against Bulger and Fleming, Right? They're in the clear. They're not under indictment. Whitey having the FBI and a federal prosecutor help him rise in the criminal ranks now. What an interesting racket he was running. On February 3rd, 1979, indictments in the case that were supposed to also be against Whitey and Steve Fleming are announced. It was as, uh, as if an atomic bomb had been dropped on the New England underworld, wiping out nearly a full, nearly a full generation of prominent mobsters. 21 gangsters were arrested in a series of high-profile raids throughout the region. Thanks to Connolly, John Matarano, Johnny Pancakes, Johnny Hazelnut Crepes, had learned about the indictment and gone on the run. Howie Winter was not tipped off and had been arrested. He was facing a 20-year sentence. Bulger was reinstated as the top echelon informant. In addition, Steve Flemming was officially reopened as a TE himself in February of 1980 with Special Agent John Connolly as his handler. The race-fixing case would wipe out most of the Winter Hill gang and leave a power vacuum that Whitey would easily step into. Along with Howie Winter, Jim uh, Martorano, John's brother, was also arrested. Joe Mac McDonald, who was already on the lam, was forced to stay on the lam. A host of other affiliated criminals were either arrested or forced into hiding and out of their once profitable brackets and rackets. With the help of the FBI and that prosecutor, Whitey had just eliminated what had once been his own gang. This is what he and the prosecutor talked about. Now Whitey, right, he'll fucking rat on anybody. Now Whitey didn't have to make trips over to the Marshall Motors garage in Somerville anymore. The old Winter Hill Gang is dead, leaving the new de facto Winter Hill Gang to be run by Whitey and Flemmie, but really just ran by Whitey. He was the the clear top dog. Whitey top dog bulger. Whitey had salami. Whitey big cheese and crackers and want murder. Now Whitey would become the boss of the entire Boston underworld. Almost. One thing stood in his way, the mafia. Uh, Luckily, Whitey had his best friends, the FBI, to help take them down. In January of 1980, the C3 squad was successfully uh, planting uh, a Title III wiretap, an act of audio surveillance authorized by a federal warrant. A bug was planted in the headquarters of Jerry Angelo, all right, the uh, Patrika family underboss and de facto leader with Raymond in prison. Jerry Jerkoff, Jerry Parmigiana, Jerry Massarare, Linguini, Antonio Banderas, known as the Dog Pound, and Julo's Modas headquarters at 98 Prince Street in the North End, thought to be the center of all decision making in the Boston Mafia. It would been a dream of the FBI since at least the fall of Raymond Patriarca Patriarcha, back in the early 70s to plant a bug at 98 Prince Street. A hand-drawn map of the interior by Steve Fleming now helped them plant that bug. But in his paperwork, Conley lied, saying the info came from Whitey instead of Steve, and Morris signed off on it. Uh, the reason they lied was because Jeremiah O'Sullivan, that prosecutor, only dropped Bulger from the race-fixing indictment because he was needed, or told he was needed, to take down the mafia. And now here's the proof that he could help with the mission. The bug would remain in place for more than a year. On one occasion, Morris was so impressed with the recordings, he arranged to meet Bulger and Flemmy at the Colonnade Hotel in Boston, brought along the actual tapes, played them for the gangsters in the hotel room. Morris and Connolly, Bulger and Flemmy all drank wine, slapped each other on the back, laughed, listened to a tape in which mafioso Nicky Chiso talked about his girlfriend. It was wildly inappropriate and illegal. This recording was supposed to be confidential. After all, Flemmy and Bulger were not federal agents. They didn't have the right to listen to these tapes. Morris got so drunk that Fleming had to drive him home. Uh, Later in a state of panic, he realized in his drunken state, he left the 98 Prince Street tape in the room at the Colonnade, had to rush back to the hotel and retrieve it. Also in 1980, a different bug is planted. Uh, That year, state police bugged the North Station garage where Bulger holds court and collects tribute from bookmakers. Apparently knowing they are being listened to because they've been tipped off, Bulger and his associates uh, engage in idle, sometimes sarcastic banter. State police have no idea that these guys knew they were being listened to. 1981, John Morris is uh, temporarily transferred from the C-3 squad to oversee an investigation concerning, of all things, officers of the Boston Police Department taking gratuities from known criminals. Classic case of putting the fox in charge of the hen house. Uh, the hen house. Morris was an expert on this subject since he'd secretly been taking money, lots of money, from two of Boston's biggest gangsters for years. Johnny Straight Lace, Johnny by the book, is now Johnny's mommy doesn't tell him what to do no more. Johnny fucking bad boy. Johnny, bad boy, bad boy, what you gonna do? Uh, Morris's investigation of the Boston police uh, would lead to nearly two dozen officers pleading guilty to charges, some being sent to prison. Dude sent, you know, tons of guys to prison for doing exactly what he was doing during this investigation. Meanwhile, Whitey keeps sending fellow gangsters to prison while also having guys killed for being rats. Uh, and now let's see what else Whitey's doing. Beginning in the early 80s, Whitey uh, implemented a hostile takeover of the neighborhood's drug trade. Within a year, he'd become the largest peddler of illegal narcotics in the history of Southie. He'd have associates buy a weekly intake of cocaine between 40 and 70 ounces, at least a kilo, which they always referred to as pizzas, in case anyone was listening. A kilo could cost anywhere from $28,000 to $34,000. They would cut it using solvents, things like uh, manitol and uh, uh, inositol or inositol. The more weight the substances uh, gained, the more money you know, they could make off of it. And, and that kind of stuff is what scares me the most about illegal drugs, not knowing what they've been cut with or how much you know has been cut into them. Uh, they also dealt weed, marijuana, storing it in a triplex at 252 E Street, but never heroin. Whitey's interesting moral compass, again, at work here. It was well known that anyone who tried to sell smack in Southie would get a beating. Heroin and prostitution forbidden under the Bolger regime. His new headquarters was now Triple O's Lounge. He also uh, rode around town now in his blue Malibu with uh, wire-rimmed wheels, had a vinyl top. Everybody knew it was his. He was brutal, willing to do what he needed to do or thought he needed to do, including murdering someone close to him if necessary. And that would happen to uh, probably his most infamous murder victim, Deborah Davis, 47-year-old Steve Flemmy's 26-year-old girlfriend. In September of 1981, Deborah learned that both men were FBI informants. The discovery came when Fleming, enraged by Deborah's insistence that he skip a late-night meetup with Bulger, admitted to his collaboration with John Connolly. Bulger finds out and is fucking infuriated by Fleming's confession. If Deborah reported them to law enforcement, she would not only jeopardize their precarious relationship with the FBI, but their lives, right? And the lives of those close to them. Whitey wasn't having that. Aware of how badly he fucked up, Fleming now concedes to Bulger's demand that they eliminate Deborah. They hatch a plan. Bulger's gonna take Deborah to the mall, then lure her to a designated location where Bulger will kill her. In a chilling chilling statement in Bulger's 2013 trial about the decision to take Deborah shopping prior to her murder, Flemmi simply said, you're so negative about it. Why don't you hear the positive side of it? Like in Flemmi's mind, how they killed her was an act of generosity. They gave Deborah one last happy experience. How nice of them. After shopping, Flemmi brought uh, Davis to a house on 3rd Street in uh, South Boston. Waiting in the house on 3rd Street was Whitey Bulger. Uh, sorry for it it seemed like Whitey was taking her shopping there. It was Fleming taking her shopping. Whitey is waiting at this house now. Whitey, uh, 52 years old at this point. Uh, Whitey uh, suddenly emerged from the shadows, wrapped his hands around Davis's throat. She struggled to break free. Squeezing tightly, never letting go of her neck, Bulger dragged her down to the basement where he finished her off. Afterward, using a pair of pliers, Fleming now pulls teeth from his freshly deceased girlfriend's mouth so that her body cannot be identified by dental records. They later trust and wrapped her body, dumped it in a shallow grave near the uh, Neponset River in Quincy, Massachusetts. Right, just fucking ripping the teeth out of the head of a woman uh, that he had some kind of feelings for, right? His girlfriend. Steve Davis never got the chance to say goodbye to his sister. She had disappeared seemingly without a trace. Two or three times, Fleming came to Steve's mother's house in tears, professing not to know where Deborah was or why she disappeared. And then they didn't hear from him anymore. The Davis family suspected Bulger and Fleming of having Deborah killed, but didn't know for sure. Deborah's mom had conversations with FBI agents who claimed that they were investigating the disappearance, but they seemed more interested in what she knew about Flemmy than the whereabouts of Deborah. Steve Davis wanted to talk to the FBI, you know, to go with his uh, mother who was meeting with agents at strange locations and odd hours. But she said, no, says Steve, when an agent told her, you have nine other kids to worry about now. She took that as a threat and stopped meeting with him. That's cool. You know, FBI threatening a victim's mother. Uh, Deborah's remains will not be found for 19 years. In April of 1982, Morris is approached by two agents from the labor racketeering squad, Gerard Montanari and Leo Brunick. They explained to Morris that they had begun to cultivate Brian Halloran, a Southie hoodlum, as a potential informant. The two agents had come to Morris to ask what he thought of Halloran's suitability. In the course of this debriefing, Montanari and Brunick also revealed to Morris that Halloran was claiming that he had been offered the contract to murder Roger Wheeler, owner of the massively successful casino World High Lie, by Bulger and Fleming, and that he turned it down. And now Morris is alarmed. Roger Wheeler had been murdered in Oklahoma uh, in May of 1981, and the investigation placed a call up to Boston connecting the murder with Bulger and Fleming. Morris put Connolly in charge of the liaison between the FBI and the Tulsa PD, hoping that Connolly would protect their prize informants and themselves. There was another alarming piece of information. The agents wanted to wire uh, up Brian Halloran and have him meet with John Callahan, former president of World Highlight. Morris remembered that it was a possibility that Callahan was involved with the murder of Roger Wheeler and thus Fleming and Bulger. If Callahan said anything to Halloran, Morris's informants would be at risk. Within a matter of days, Morris directed Connolly to tell Whitey there was a problem that they should take care of. Brian Halloran needed to die. Two FBI agents are essentially calling in a hit now. Four weeks later, May 11th, 1982, Morris comes in to work at the federal building uh, and learns that Brian, uh, weird, had been gunned down on the Boston waterfront along with Michael Donahue, an innocent victim who had been given Halloran a ride home. Like, right? oh well, throw some pork chops and uh, don't cry about it. Uh, what's done is done. Morris, of course, uh, provided the information that led to the murder. The once innocent Midwestern middle manager, no longer innocent. Later on the witness stand, he would say he felt bad about it. So that's nice. But he never told any of his superiors and he went out of his way along with Connolly to create a false investigative narrative to hide what had happened. Connolly filed a report in which Bulger placed the blame for the Halloran Donahue murders on a group from Charlestown. The file read, source advised that the story being put out by the state police is that the FBI got Halloran killed, but source advised that the people from Charlestown say it was the state police who let the cat out of the bag. And in fact, the Charlestown crew had information that Halloran was talking to Colonel O'Donovan and Trooper Fralick. So now they're fucking throwing the, these random police officers on the bus. Not only had they disguised Bulger's involvement, right? They put the blame onto the Massachusetts State Police and Colonel Jack O'Donovan, a man who for years had been trying to sound fucking alarm bells about the FBI's relationship with Bulger. A couple shady law enforcement agents, right? Fucking over a clean one who's about to expose him. Morris reviews and initials the report. In August of 1982, another murder goes down. John B. Callahan shot twice in the back of the head, right? That former president of World High Lie, though there was no proof that Callahan was an FBI informant, there was a fear that he would implicate Bulger in Roger Wheeler's death, so he had to go. And then in 1983, Morrison Connolly would get involved in the fallout of the murder of Teddy Deegan. Remember him? Four men wrongfully convicted in his murder because of the FBI. In 1983, Peter, uh, Petey Lamoni was being considered for commution of a sentence. He'd been in prison for 18 years on the Deegan murder conviction. There had always been rumors that the conviction of Lamoni, Salvati, and others was tainted, but the criminal justice system fought back against those rumors. One of the people involved in the decision was named Michael Albano, who was a member of the Massachusetts State Parole Board. In 1983, he was approached by John Morris and John Connolly. According to Albano, he was visited in his office and verbally bullied by the two FBI agents who told him if he voted for, you know, commuting, Limoni's sentence, his career in public life would be fucking over. So Morris and Connolly, Johnny Bad Fed and Johnny Worse Fed, really committed to keeping this innocent dude in prison to save their asses. Albano considered the attempt to influence his decision by the two agents to be a flagrant effort by the FBI to intimidate him, and he v- voted to commute this guy anyway. Years later, after Limoni's sentence was commuted, Albano went on to become the mayor of Springfield, Massachusetts, and then in 1995, he was the subject of a very suspicious FBI investigation into wrongdoing in his administration, and Albano believed the investigation was an act of revenge by the FBI because he voted to commute uh, Limoni's sentence. The FBI's probe of, Major, uh, of Mayor Albano was eventually thrown out of court. You know, just there was it was baseless uh, going back to the FBI's activities with Whitey. As you may remember, he was working with the FBI to take down Jerry and Julio in the early and mid 80s at the FBI as the FBI and federal New England organized crime strike force under Jeremiah O'Sullivan were building a major case against Jerry and his brothers uh, or in the early and mid 80s. They were building this big case against him and his brothers, Mikey, Danny and Nikki. Fucking love it. Almost everyone's name ends in Y or sounds like it does in this universe. Um. It said articles on the mafia frequently appeared in the front of the uh, Globes Metro section. These articles based almost exclusively on law enforcement sources, cops, FBI agents, prosecutors who leaked info to the press with the understanding that their names would not appear in print. In later years, it would become known that special agents John Morris and John Connolly were among those unnamed sources, right? They're playing the media. The more info the feds report about the mafia, the less is in the news about Whitey Bulger. That same year, a state trooper notices Bookie showing up at Heller's, a nondescript Chelsea bar, which turned out to be the bookie's bank where checks from gamblers are laundered. In 1983, in July, another murder. Whitey kills a jewel thief and bank robber named Arthur Bucky Barrett. <laughs> if you don't have fucking name that ends in Y, you got to get a nickname. Uh, this guy uh, was targeted for extortion. He was shot in the back of the head. November of 1984, uh, 1984 Whitey kills again. He and his associates murdered John McIntyre, a Quincy fisherman who had cooperated with the authorities regarding Bulger's drug smuggling and ill-fated effort to ship arms to the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. I believe we talked about that in the Irish uh, mob episode. Didn't go well for him. This dude was strangled with the rope, then shot in the back of his head. Bolly of shots, then fired into his face. January of 1985, perhaps the most shocking murder goes down. At the time, Fleming had been in a relationship with Marion Hussey for over two decades, one of many women this dude fucked around with. When they started going out, Marion's daughter, Deborah, was two. Over the years, they developed a close relationship. Deborah Hussey called him Daddy uh, hopefully not uh oh, sorry, I had flashbacks of fucking R. Kelly right there. Uh, he would read her stories and uh drove her to school. And then in 1985, when she's 26, you know, he's basically her stepfather and also her fucking lover. A little bit gross. And on one night in January, Steve drives her to her own murder. This guy has no soul. After driving her to a house and letting her inside, Bulger looped a rope around her neck, tied a stick to the rope, twisted it until she fucking choked to death. Then Flemmie got on his knees and once again. Pulled out the teeth of a woman freshly murdered by Whitey, who he had been dating, uh, a woman in this case uh, that he basically helped raise too, right? He'd known her since she was two years old, and he's totally cool with her having a you know or having her killed just to save his own ass. Just straight sociopath. Uh, Bulger wanted Hussey killed because her mother was aware of her fling with Flemmy. She used drugs and talked carelessly, making her a liability. She was buried under the South Boston house along with the uh, two other male murder victims, or under a South Boston. House, uh, their remains will be transferred when the house was sold in late 1985. And what a weird relationship Whitey and Steve had. Can you imagine staying friends with somebody who has uh, now strangled two of your girlfriends? 1986, the FBI joins a case uh, begun by the state troopers at Hellers, the bar that served as the bookie's bank we heard about a few moments ago. They planted bugs in the establishment, leading, uh, learning who paid quote rent to the mafia and who paid rent to Winter Hill. But they weren't really interested in who paid Winter Hill. The FBI only interested in going after the mafia, thanks to Whitey's tentacles in the agency. Winter Hill connections will be buried. Later that year, the FBI will bug Vanessa's an Italian food emporium in the Prudential Center, where the successors to Angelo, uh, his re- regime, had set up shop. Whitey and Angelo—I always want to say Angelo, but it's like Julo, I guess. Uh, Whitey and Steve continue to fly under the radar despite all the murders and drug running and fixing races and more. But all that will change in 1988 when the Globe runs an explosive four-part series of articles under the heading The Bulger Mystique. The series, put together by a group of four reporters designated the spotlight team, was as much about Senator Billy Bulger as it was about his alleged gangster brother. The articles delved into what became known as the 75 State Street Investigation, a proposed federal probe into a real estate deal in which Senator Bulger had received a suspicious $250,000 payment that might have been an illegal transaction. Senator Bulger claimed the payment had been a loan, the money was returned to the person who made the payment, and he was right. The transaction had nothing to do with Whitey. The investigation of the senator had been terminated and no charges were ever filed against Billy Bulger. But the article series also mentioned Whitey Bulger had a special relationship with the FBI, and now Whitey and Connolly are wondering, how the fuck did they get that information? Later, many years later, during Whitey's trial, Morris will claim that he fed the info to bring about the end of the FBI's relationship with Whitey, so no other agents would be compromised like he had been wanted out he wanted to stop putting more blood on his hands johnny straight laced johnny by the book still alive somewhere inside of him Whitey later said he did wonder if it was morris that he believed he had leaked the info to the press to get him killed by underworld rivals which you know would make sense for Connolly and uh and morris get this guy killed and then uh, they can uh, get some distance between themselves and all the shit they helped that guy do but there was no suggestion in the press of corruption just unnamed sources in the massachusetts state police claiming that the fbi was possibly protecting Bulger from investigation by other agencies. Although Bulger's career as a racketeer, including a number of early gangland murders, was detailed in the Globe series, there was no mention of the FBI leaking info to Bulger so that he could murder potential informants' or rivals. No mention of his possible role in the disappearance of Deborah Davis, Deborah Hussey, and many others. But still, why do you know he's nervous? When will all his ratting truly be exposed, a truth that will certainly get him killed if he's not careful? 1989 mafia boss frank salemi survives an assassination bid by rivals from vanessa's he's fucking back out of the joint that same year the mafia will suffer a huge hit from the government the mafioso who gathered at vanessa's to shake down bookies are indicted in 1989 and imprisoned in 1990 and whitey had helped take him down dude has been taking down rivals with the fbi's help for 15 years now also in 1989 a south boston bar owner and mortgage company official tim Connolly, will go to the authorities claiming that whitey bulger menaced him with a knife Demanding $50,000 after Connolly dropped the ball on getting a loan for a drug trafficker who, owned, who owed Bulger money. Strongest evidence yet linking Bulger to drugs and violence. Following year, Connolly also walks, uh, also wants to walk away from all of this. Whitey is you know, easily far and away the biggest fucking crime boss in Boston now. Uh, Connolly does try to walk away. He retires from the FBI in 1990 after 22 years. Accepting a highly paid job with Boston Edison, a utility company, randomly. He's done living on the edge, wants to work somewhere that has fuck all to do with organized crime and Whitey Bulger. And now with Connolly out of the picture, the FBI drops Bulger and Fleming as informants and begins targeting them. Connolly at this point should have left the country. Uh, how could he not have worried that all the shit he'd already done with Whitey was going to you know, come back and bite him now? Uh, 1990, 51 people said to be part of a South Boston-based drug ring overseen by Bulger's underlings are arrested all eventually pled guilty, but only one of them agrees to cooperate with the government and he does not implicate Bulger. Good thing his crew had uh, more integrity than Whitey did. But without federal protection, it's got to feel like only a matter of time before somebody implicates Bulger. Following year, state police convinced uh, bookie Burton Chico Krantz, remember we talked about him a while back, uh, to become an informant. And he claims now that he paid rent to Bulger and Fleming. State police bring evidence to federal authorities, a joint investigation is launched and it will go on for more than three years. Federal charges seem imminent. Four years later, in the spring of 94, the DEA, the Massachusetts State Police and the Boston Police Department launch an investigation into Bulger's gambling operations. But despite being retired for years now, Connolly comes to the rescue again. He's contacted. He's able to point them in another direction, not just to save Whitey's ass, but to save his own. But he won't put off the inevitable for very long following year, in January of 95, 65-year-old Whitey Bulger and 60-year-old Steve Fleming are formally indicted for racketeering. They're charged with enough to put them away for life, especially when the investigation will inevitably lead to numerous other charges. Fleming tried running, but was captured as he left a financial district restaurant and hasn't been free since. He's 89 now, still in prison. Bulger was already gone, he had fled uh, shortly before with his girlfriend, Teresa Stanley. He'd left a, a little bit, you know, earlier and then returned a month later after Stanley decided that she wanted to return to her children. But then he quickly flees again with a mistress, 44-year-old Catherine Gregg, right? Dude risks imprisonment for life to drop one girlfriend off and pick another one off and pick another one up. Uh, Bulger and Gregg now travel under aliases. They head first to Louisiana. Uh, they go to New York. Uh, they'll, they'll be elsewhere around the world, London, and other places before uh, eventually making it to California. Excuse me. On December 31st, 1995, John Morris, John Connolly's former boss, now retires from the FBI. Not good for Connolly. Now he has nobody inside to protect him for uh, you know, and nobody able to cover up all of uh, the shit that they did with Whitey. Two years later, he'll he'll receive a call from someone representing the FBI's office of professional responsibility, asking about Whitey Bulger. This initial conversation will lead to more and more conversations, which will lead to Morris cutting a deal with federal prosecutor Fred Weisshak in 1997 a man putting together a case against former FBI agent John Connolly in exchange for telling everything he knows Morris is given immunity. Lucky him. He'll testify in a bunch of hearings, depositions and trials over the next two decades. 1999, Bulger is officially listed on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list. At one point being designated the Bureau's second most wanted man behind only Osama bin Laden. A $1 million reward is issued for providing any info leading directly to his arrest. And while he's on the list, the government starts making an even bigger case on Bulger because they have new sources. After Bulger went on the run, Flemmy began to spill his guts to the feds on his former partner and longtime associate and bodyguard Kevin Weeks cuts his own deal with the government. At one point in his life, Weeks looked up to Bulger as if he was a, a big brother or an uncle. At the age of 19, he was handpicked by Whitey to serve as his muscle. When Bulger wanted someone physically threatened or assaulted, Weeks was his man brawny and physically capable weeks broke bones once beaten a man who owed bulger money uh, so brutally he shattered some bones in his own hands weeks was also frequently called upon to help bulger and phlegmy dispose of bodies of murder victims uh so we could tell the feds where all the bodies were buried now including the body of deborah davis who weeks helped bury weeks testified in court and served five years in prison he was paroled in 2004 now lives once again in Southie, doing uh, who the fuck knows what September 21st, 2000, federal prosecutors unseal an indictment charging Boston's most infamous and elusive mob figure and longtime associate Steve Fleming with involvement in the killings of 21 people between the two, from rivals to strangers in the wrong place at the wrong time to their own girlfriends, in a reign of intimidation and murder that spanned some 25 years. Until then, the main defendant, James Bulger, had never been charged with murder, though he was indicted in racketeering of racketeering in 1995. But in a long and complex investigation, U.S. Attorney Donald K. Stern, fucking Donnie by the law, Donnie fucking lawyer guy, uh, said layer upon layer of myth, fear and protection have been stripped away. Fleming was already in prison, awaiting trial for the 1995 racketeering charges. Same year, Greg is spotted at a hair salon in Fountain Valley, California, where she had her hair dyed, uh, while Bulger waited in the car parked outside. They flee again. May 29, 2002, John Connolly, convicted by a federal jury of racketeering, and obstruction of justice for secretly aiding organized crime leaders. The jury found Connolly, now 61 years old, not guilty of the most serious charges against him, including providing info that led to the murders of three men and helping to cover up the acquisition by extortion at gunpoint of a liquor business from a young South Boston couple. Jury also found Connolly not guilty of receiving a series of bribes from Bulger and Fleming, though he was found guilty of taking $1,000 and a case of fine wine from Mr. Bulger and giving it to his FBI supervisor, Mr. Morris, in 1984. Jury also found the government had failed to prove that in the three cases Connolly tipped off Bulger about what other informants were telling the FBI about his criminal activities, info that the government said led Bulger to have them killed. But the, ju- uh, but the jury did find Connolly guilty of alerting Bulger and Mr. Flemmi about a secret grand jury indictment against them in 1994, enabling Bulger to flee. The jury also found Connolly guilty of obstruction of justice and sending an anonymous false letter to Judge Mark Wolf during the 1998 trial of Flemmi in an effort to have the charges against Flemmie thrown out. After the verdict was read, Michael Sullivan, the U.S. attorney, said that Mr. Connolly's conduct was appalling and that unfortunately, as the evidence showed, John Connolly was not alone in being corrupted. Morris had admitted on the witness stand that he himself had taken $7,000 from Flemmie and Bulger, and in exchange had provided them with confidential information in the 80s. And uh, he's full of shit. These guys took so much more than $7,000. Connolly faced 10 to 15 years in prison now. In 2003, the Davis family, along with the families of Deborah Hussey and Louis Latif, two other murder victims of Bulger and Flemmy, file a joint lawsuit against the FBI and the DOJ on the theory that the government aided and abetted Bulger and Flemmy in the murders of their loved ones. In 2003, the family of murder victim John McIntyre files a similar suit. Later, more wrongful death lawsuits were filed, this time by the families of additional murder victims, Brian Halloran and Michael Donahue. The government aggressively contests these cases rather than reach settlements with the families. How fucked up. And that creates a lot of ill will, as it should have in Boston, towards the Department of Justice. In 2004, an unassuming bureaucrat named James Mara is assigned to investigate matters of internal corruption surrounding Bulger's relationship with the FBI. Over a nine-year period, he had become an expert on all government documentation pertaining to the relationship between the FBI and Bulger. But his testimony won't appear on the scene until much later. What a fucking mess all this is. So many skeletons coming out of the closet. So much distrust now for the FBI and and rightfully so for all the corruption. In 2005, the McIntyre family receives a favorable judgment of $2.3 million, money to be paid by U.S. taxpayers. Halloran and Donahue families win their cases, are awarded collectively $4 million in damages. But then the rulings are overturned on appeal on the grounds that the families had filed their suits after the statute of limitations had expired. How fucked up. And how did that not come up earlier? Earlier. Davis' family, along with the families of Hussey and Latif, won their initial cases as well. They received judgments ranging from $335,000 to $1.3 million. Again, the government appeals. But in 2012, this time, the financial judgments are upheld. Also in 2005, in an interview that Kevin Weeks did with the CBS news program, 60 Minutes, it was revealed that Bulger and Weeks had considered killing Howie Carr, a Boston journalist and radio show host who wrote several books about Bulger. Wonder how how he felt uh, about hearing that. Bulger wanted to kill him because of Car uh, because of his incessant lampooning of Senator Billy Bulger in print and on his radio show. It may have also been because uh, Car speculated endlessly about Whitey Bulger's sexual preferences, often portraying him as a covert gay hustler who liked little boys. That's a fucking wrong dude to taunt. Car is lucky to have lived through that. Uh, Kevin Weeks had even gone so far as to stalk Car to his summer vacation house, where he staked out the location with the intention of shooting the famed columnist. When he walked out his front door, almost did that. But then, when Carr emerged with his young daughter walking out the door, didn't carry off the hit. Dude came so close to getting fucking whacked by hoodlums, vagabonds. Now, back to Connolly. Uh, he initially had been sentenced to 10 years in federal prison, but now he was about to face a lot more time. Chickens are coming home to roost. These guys are getting cockadoodle doomed. Uh, November 6, 2008, John Connolly was convicted of second degree murder for leaking info to Boston mobsters that led to the 1981 murder of Roger Wheeler and the 1982 murder of John B. Callahan. During the trial, Bulger Associates, Steve Flemmi, John uh, Martorano, and Kevin Weeks testified for the prosecution detailing Connolly's ties to Bulger and Flemmi. Flemmi testified that he and Bulger paid Connolly $235,000 over the years but started cutting his payments in the late 1980s after he started attracting attention uh, through too many luxury purchases, including a boat. Yep, that $7,000 claim was bullshit. Even $235,000 seems light. IRS special agent Sandra Lemansky testified that during the 1980s, Connolly bought a 27 foot Sea Ray boat for uh, just over $46,000, South Boston Condo for $63,000 with a $12,000 down payment, Brewster Condo for $80,000 with a $15,000 down payment, Land in Chatham, or Chatham, cash dang it, Chatham, uh, for $98,000, and then uh, built a house on that property for $132,000. I can't believe money went that, went that far. Uh, that wasn't that long ago, uh, $235,000 in 1980 is said to be worth by an inflation calculator, uh, $867,000 today, but that's not really accurate because of how much real estate prices have left. When it comes to real estate, that money went a lot farther back then. Uh, in 1980, the average price was, uh, $147,500 for a home. Now it's $929,000. So real estate over six times more expensive now in Boston than it was in 1980. Uh, during the eighties, Connolly's uh, annual FBI salary started at forty five thousand dollars, gradually increased to sixty five thousand dollars. She said, "How was he buying all that shit?" Making Connolly look worse, Denise Taste, uh, an FBI employee who worked as an assistant to Connolly in nineteen eighty eight, testified that one time when he was not in the office, she uh, Connolly instructed her to leave his paycheck on his desk. Taste admitted that when she looked at the check, it was for two thousand seventy eight dollars. Then she opened the middle drawer of his desk and saw about ten more uncashed checks inside thought I was a little suspicious that he didn't need all that money. Now, that money wasn't shit compared to his hoodlum money, Johnny bankroll, Johnny blood money, Johnny cool condos and boats and shit, but now can't use it because he's in prison. Also, also testifying against Connolly was his former FBI super, uh, superior, John Morris. Jurors deliberated less than three days before delivering the verdict after a two-month trial guilty of second-degree murder, now faced with the possibility of life in prison. Also in 2008, the FBI uh, increased its reward to $2 million for info leading directly to Bulger's capture, largest reward ever offered at the time by the FBI for a domestic fugitive. Bulger and Greg had been allegedly spotted in various places around Europe from 2002 to 2007, still unknown where they are. January 15th, 2009, 68-year-old Connolly sentenced to 40 years in prison. Judge Blake said he crossed over to the dark side. Meanwhile, Bulger now makes it to Santa Monica, California. Living in an apartment 303 at the Princess Eugenia Apartments, 1012 3rd Street with his girlfriend, Catherine Gregg. Uh, I lived at 140 or, or 1445 6th Street for a year in Santa Monica while he was living there, less than a mile away, 0. 0.8 miles. I do wonder if we ever crossed paths. Uh, Bulger lived less than a mile from where the that old YMCA worked at is. It's my gym, Cotty. Maybe he worked out there. Uh, he owned more than 30 firearms, all fully loaded, hidden around this place, safety's off, ready to go at a moment's notice. Uh, he kept some of his arsenal inside cutout walls, uh, hollowed-out books, along with a ton of knives and over $800,000 in cash. Armed to the teeth, Bulger vowed he would never be taken alive. Meanwhile, at FBI's Boston headquarters at One Center Plaza, special agents Noreen Gleason and Rich Tian are still trying to track this dude down. The FBI is about to issue a PSA on Catherine Gregg, which they hope will generate some leads a uh, team will later say we didn't really care how he was going to be found we didn't care if it was a local cop in iowa or the dea in bogota all that mattered was catching that motherfucker that's a quote i love that they threw out a motherfucker there uh the fbi uh bought 350 time slots during daytime tv shows that appealed to women including live with regis and kelly the view and the ellen DeGeneres show They thought that Whitey and Catherine were likely living around fellow older people, that Catherine would have friends in this demographic, and that targeting older women would be the best way to catch them. And they were right. June 21st, 2011, the Bulger Task Force lets the 32nd commercial spot fly. This is an announcement by the FBI. A female narrator declared, Have you seen this woman? High-resolution photos of Greg, you know, slide into the video frame next to the FBI shield, along with a reward in bold type of $100,000. Greg has had plastic surgeries. The narrator continued. I don't know why I'm sounding like fucking Unsolved Mysteries guy right now. She's wanted for harboring James Whitey Bulger, a fugitive on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. 81-year-old Whitey may be living under an alias such as Donnie Grumpled Stiltskin, Teddy Orthopedics, Frankie Metamucil, or Bobby Arthritis. Maybe they didn't say that last stuff. Uh, both Tina Gleason made sure that the commercial evoked a sense of fear for Greg's safety. They added a line about Bulger's violent temper Along with the fact that he was wanted for 19 murders in hopes of mobilizing a sisterhood of female viewers that might help rescue the girlfriend of a terrible gangster from harm's way. Of course, in actuality, they considered her a willing co conspirator in Bulger's escape. Well, the spot generated major news, and soon Tian's phone was inundated with interview requests from media around the world. Suddenly, Greg's photos appeared on TV screens and websites all over the place. Bulger will later say he was uh, sitting in his apartment watching CNN when the story flashed on the screen. When he saw the picture, he turned to Catherine and said somberly, that's it. Back at One Center Plaza, Special Agent Phil Torrancey was faced with a big pile of tips now. He recognized three different inquiries that had come from the same tipster, a woman named Anna Bornsdottir from Reykjavik, Iceland. The person that I think is him is living at Princess Eugenia Apartments in Santa Monica, California. Call me back immediately, Anna said in in accented English. They called themselves Charlie and Carol Gasco. It was Bourne's daughter who uh, had once befriended Greg over the mutual love of a stray cat named Tiger. She even provided an actual location and a name, which differentiated this tip from the rest. Agents checked federal law enforcement databases, did find out that a Carol and Charles Gasco were living at the Santa Monica address she had given. The couple had no birth dates listed, no social security numbers, no California driver's licenses, no state identification cards. They were ghosts. Now it was time to contact the local LA uh, FBI. Special Agent Scott Gariola, Scotty good guy. Scotty beach bum. Scotty fucking venison. I don't know. Uh, He worked out of the LA office since 1991 and hunted and captured dozens of dangerous fugitives, including one from the FBI's top 10 list before this. Gariola summoned uh, four members of his fugitive team from the LAPD to join him on the hunt in Santa Monica, then called the tipster himself. He asked Bourne's daughter, are you sure, or no, I'm sorry. How sure are you that the couple you met are fugitives that we are looking for? Uh, And she said, he, uh, Bulger claimed he was from Chicago, but I've traveled around the country and I know it wasn't a Chicago accent. It was a Boston accent. Bourne's daughter replied, I got into several arguments with him. He's a racist and very anti-Obama, but the woman he is with was very pleasant. I'm not 100% sure, she added. I am 200% sure it's them. And that was good enough for Gariola. Josh Bond, the manager of the Princess Eugenia Apartments, uh, was napping on his couch in his apartment when he was awakened by a coworker who told him that an FBI agent was in the office. Bond went down to the office where the agent showed him photos of Whitey and Catherine. Gariola told him, I'll make this real quick. I'm looking for a couple of fugitives. Are these the people living in apartment 303 at Princess Eugenia? Bond stared at the photos of his friends, Charlie and Carol, put his head in his hands. and He said, that's my neighbor and his girlfriend. Yes, 100% it's them. Gariola told the manager their real names, that they were wanted for uh, serious crimes, including murder. Bond was shocked. He told him, I know who Whitey Bulger is. I went to school in Boston. Gariola asked, you never put the two and two together that this was Whitey Bulger? And he said, I never saw a picture of him before. Well, it's him and I need some information from you. Bond was unsure whether or not to cooperate. Can we talk downstairs? He asked. Gariola didn't like that answer. He thought that maybe Bulger had set up a tripwire through the apartment manager to lure him somewhere long enough for Whitey to escape. The FBI agent called in his LAPD, uh, LAPD team members for backup. Bond now advised, okay, You should meet your team in the back of the building. He's always on the balcony with a pair of binoculars looking up and down the street. Gariola said he couldn't believe how clueless the manager was. He asked incredulously, and you didn't think that was odd as well? But I don't think uh, Gariola spent uh, enough time in Santa Monica. Uh, That city is full of apartment buildings, full of eccentric weirdos. I don't think I would have thought anything either. Yeah, so he's always watching the street with binoculars. So what? My other neighbor thinks Steve Spielberg or Steven Spielberg, Stevie, fucking Stevie movie Spielberg. Stole the idea for Indiana Jones from him. Then another guy who lives downstairs is always uh, working out, preparing for the day. He's going to try and beat up Steven Seagal for taking his girlfriend thirty years ago. This town's full of uh, nothing but weirdos. Bond then inquired about a subpoena. Gariola quickly mentioned the big FBI reward for Whitey's capture, and that triggered the manager's arrest. Somebody's already in line for the two million dollar reward for leading us to Bulger's doorstep. The agent said, but there's another hundred grand for Catherine. What can I do to help? bond asked oh fuck yeah bro uh, the agent told bond to meet him in the back alley of the princess eugenia the two men then went upstairs to the third floor and gariola pressed his ear against the front door of apartment 303 There was silence so gariola sneaked down to the garage underneath the apartment building walked toward a set of storage lockers that were assigned to each unit he found the locker for apartment 303 with the name gasco's written in crayon and had an idea he'd retrieve a set of bolt cutters cut the lock off Take some stuff out of the locker, toss it on the ground, make it look like a, bull, a burglary in hopes of luring a uh, bulger downstairs. Gariola called for more backup, then phoned Bond. Call the Gascos and tell them to meet you at their storage locker. Gariola ordered. Bond placed the call, but there was no answer. A moment later, though, he gets a call back. Hi, Josh, did you just call? And it was Catherine Gregg. Yes, Carol, I have some bad news. Your storage unit was broken into. Do you want me to call police or meet me down in the garage? Moments later, Catherine appeared on the balcony. Garriola fired off a quick text to Boston, looking good, stand by. Then Whitey himself stepped out of the apartment wearing a white hat, tracksuit, tap dance shoes, princess wings, Michael Jackson wig, heavy leather chaps, or just the hat and the tracksuit, and took the elevator down to the garage. Bulger later described the scene in vivid detail in a letter to author Michael Esslinger. When I got off the elevator, I could see my locker. I noticed that the door was hanging off knew something wasn't right what first caught my eye was that i saw a few pieces of colored tape on the cement as if to mark positions like on a stage i started walking toward my locker a light was shined on me and quite a few men in full combat gear and armed with m4 carbines fully automatic machine guns and a couple point glock handguns took aim at me the agent in charge yelled who are you and i said who the fuck are you homeland security I love it, actually. Uh, he was surrounded. The agents demanded Bulger get on his knees, but he didn't want to kneel in a spot where they wanted him to kneel because there was a little pool of oil there. Gary Ola backed this up in an interview, uh, said this dude was gangster to the end. He told the agents to fuck off. when they're like, get down to the ground. He was like, fuck you. Uh, 16 years on the run, millions in law enforcement spent, all came down to this moment, a deadly standoff over whether or not Whitey would get his pants dirty. We will shoot, they screamed, right? Bulger at, at one point told him, go ahead. He wasn't kneeling down. But then he did move a few steps and kneeled down in the spot where there wasn't oil. Uh, What's your name, Gariola asked, with the gun trained on Whitey's chest. You know who I am, Bulger said defiantly. Okay, Whitey, we have a warrant for your arrest. Gariola then took out a pair of handcuffs, tied them to Bulger's wrists. Is Catherine upstairs? Whitey nodded. Do you have any guns up there? Yeah, Bulger replied, and they're all loaded. Uh, what do you mean? Do I need to call a SWAT team to get her out of there? Gariola asked. No, no, Whitey assured him. All the guns are mine. She's never held a gun. She's not allowed in my bedroom. <laughs> Love they have separate bedrooms in their little hideout. Maybe, uh, maybe it's because Whitey's sleep was uh, so messed up from all that acid. Uh, Gariola sent another group text to FBI headquarters. One in custody, one to go. Bulger captured. Stand by for Catherine. The agent got a female detective to accompany him to apartment 303. Santa Monica PD, Gariola shouted. Open the door. Catherine walked to the door, turned the knob slowly, opened it, let out an exasperated sigh. She knew the game was finally over. Inside the apartment, they find 30 guns, more than uh, $822,000 in cash, knives, ammo, and again, much of it was hidden in the walls. March of 2012, Catherine Gregg pleads guilty to conspiracy to harbor a fugitive, conspiracy to commit identity fraud and identity fraud. And in uh, June, she was sentenced to eight years in prison. And then she was released in July of 2020. Uh, She is now 72 years old. Jury selection of Bulger's trial began in early June, 2013. He faced a massive 33-count indictment, money laundering, extortion, drug dealing, corrupting the FBI and other law enforcement officials, and participating in 19 murders. And who knows how many people he really killed, right? But they had evidence for 19. Also charged with federal racketeering for running a criminal enterprise from 1972 to 2028 28 years. Trial would begin on June 12th, 2013. Over the course of the trial, many people would testify, including many of Bulger's old criminal associates, John Mara, uh, who investigated his connection with the FBI and John Connolly. Prosecutor Wyshek walked the jury through hundreds of pages of what became known as Bulger's rat file. Former FBI agent John Morris would testify. After having Morris take the jury through a distillation of his career in law enforcement, Weishack got to hear the heart or got to the heart of the matter, uh, asking, Now, all right, did you come to know a man named James Bulger? Yes, said Morris. Do do you see him sitting in the courtroom today? Yes, I do. Would you point him out? Right there, said Morris, pointing towards the defendant. Bulger ignored him just like he'd ignored all the other witnesses. Over his testimony, Morris described how Agent Connolly had convinced him that the linchpin of their case against the mafia in Boston would be Bulger. He described how, from the beginning, Bulger was given things that normally were not given to informants, meetings at homes instead of in cars and in hotel rooms. And soon Morris did that shit too. He cooked pasta for his guests. Steve and Whitey brought bottles of wine to have with dinner. Throughout his testimony, Morris blamed Connolly. And working with that testimony, the prosecution's argument was that Bulger corrupted Connolly and then Connolly corrupted Morris. Then like an infection, it spread to the rest of the FBI's C3 squad. The truth was, uh, you know, if Morris had said no to Connolly, the entire Bulger era might not have happened. Morris was an active participant, but the prosecution needed to build a case. And that's, uh, you know, how it was going to happen. And it seemed like Whitey knew that. As Morris spoke, at one point, Whitey muttered, you're a fucking liar. August 12, 2013, after a two-month trial, a jury of eight men and four women deliberated for five days found Bulger guilty on 31 counts, including federal racketeering, extortion, conspiracy, and 11 of the 19 murders. Uh, Bulger, now 84 years old, sentenced to two life sentences plus five years in prison, November 13th, 2013. According to the Chicago Tribune, U.S. District Judge Denise Casper told Bulger that the scope, the callousness, the depravity of your crimes are almost unfathomable. And it seems despite his advanced age, his bad behavior will continue. Fucking Whitey bad boy. Whitey naughty guy till the end. (laughs) Some of this stuff fucking cracks me up. At the Coleman Prison Complex in Florida in September of 2014, Whitey would be disciplined multiple times, including once for masturbating in front of a male staff member. (laughs) and once in February for threatening a female medical staff member according to prison documents when he was 85 years old he was fucking jerking off in front of a guard still got it fuck boy look at my fucking dick look at it 85 years cutting diamonds you piece of shit I'll fucking come on your face Uh, February uh, (laughs) in February Bulger had told the female staff member that your day of reckoning is coming this guy I mean I don't don't want to say I respect it because he's so fucked up, but he did stay a gangster until the end. A rat, but also a gangster to the end. Bulger was sent to solitary confinement. As a result, remained there until October when he was transferred to a facility in Oklahoma. August of 2016, Bulger asked the U.S. Supreme Court to hear an appeal of his case. Nah. October 30th, 2018, at around 8.20 a.m., Bulger, 89 years old now, is found unresponsive at a United States penitentiary in Hazleton, West Virginia where he had just been transferred like hours before. He'd been beaten by a group of inmates with a padlock stuffed in a sock. They rolled his wheelchair, excuse me, into a corner before proceeding with a brutal attack. Beating was so violent, it displaced his eyeballs. He was unrecognizable and bleeding profusely, but still alive when found by prison authorities at 8.20 that Tuesday morning. Tough son of a bitch, knocking on the door at 90 years old and and a beating like that. Right, still doesn't just immediately kill him. Fucking whitey, wicked tough. Oh, Jimmy, hard bones. Jimmy, thick skull. Jimmy, holy fuck! Why are his eyeballs doing out, down his cheek like that? Uh, guards immediately undertook life-saving measures, but uh, he was soon pronounced dead. Prison official identified one of the suspects as Freddie Gius. Of course, ends in a Y. Uh, Fifty-one, a hitman from West Springfield, Massachusetts. Freddie, fuck around and find out. Freddie, eyeballs. Freddie was serving a life sentence at the Hazleton Penitentiary uh, for the 2003 killing of the leader of the Genovese crime family in Springfield. Freddie's lawyer would acknowledge that Freddie had a particular distaste for cooperators, hated a fucking rat, a snitch, a stool pigeon, a squealer. Born into a Greek family, Freddie could uh, never be made a med- made man, but he was a mob enforcer and hitman. And he was notorious for hating rats and men who hurt women. He refused to take any plea deals or work with law enforcement on any level when he was sent away for life. He is now 56 and will die in prison. Uh, Not surprised he took out Whitey. After all those years, Whitey finally gets justice, poetic justice, killed for being a rat. Back in Boston, particularly in Whitey Bulger's old stomping grounds in Southie, many were relieved at the news that the long deadly saga of Whitey Bulger was finally over. An 85-year-old man named Ed, who did not want to give his last name because he said he knew one of Bulger's brothers, still talked with him, didn't want to alienate him, spoke for many when he said that Mr. Bulger's death represented justice. He said, I hate to be morbid, but knowing the way of a person he was, it's probably a long time coming, seeing that he was responsible for so many other families and people's misery over the years. There's an old saying, what goes around comes around. Many of the families of Bulger's victims did not hide their glee when they heard about his death. Patricia Donahue, whose husband, Michael Donahue, was killed in 1982. That innocent bystander, killed along with Brian Halloran, said, All I really wanted to do was get that champagne bottle and pop that cork. Fucking love it. I fucking love Boston people. Uh, Mrs. Donahue said, uh, it's been a long time waiting. Now my family can relax a little bit now that we don't have to worry about hearing his name all the time. And then Stephen Davis, the brother of Deborah Davis said he was pleased. He died the way I always hoped he, he died the way I hoped he always was going to die. And with that, let's get out of this timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Uh, Right before the recap, let's squeeze in one more sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by Whipple! Irish Gangster Nicknames Edition. Each fucking can of the world's most fucking powerful energy drink was made by the greatest team of energy drink makers in the history of energy, you goofy-looking fuck. Tony Salami Legs McNeil, Jimmy Jazz Hands O'Reilly, Mickey shepherd Pie with a little too much butter in the potatoes Kilkenny, Larry Brickbat McSweeney, Johnny chops, Fat Donnie, Greased Weasel Tails Quinn, Frankie Makes a Better Pork Chop Than Johnny chops McMurphy, Willie Animal cracks McGregor, Larry Don't Let Him Lick Your Uncle Orion, Skinny Vinny, Regular Size Patty, Tiny Tommy, not quite tiny, but I have a hard time justifying calling him a normal-sized guy, Gary Walsh. And last but not least, Joey always takes the last piece of fucking pizza even when he's at someone's house who never really fucking invited him and has tried to make it clear through fucking nonverbal body language cues that it would be best if he leaves because he's so fucking annoying and he always smells like pickles. Even though no one has ever seen him eat a single fucking pickle, which is weird because we talk often about how fucking crazy it is that everyone's waiting to catch this motherfucker eating a pickle, but no one ever can. And it's been at least eight fucking years since that pizza swiping rap bastard first got this super long nickname. O'Malley, fuck you, fuck your family, and drink Whipple! Irish Gangster Nicknames Edition. Whipple, a proud subsidiary of Bear Evil Incorporated. Hell yeah. That's the kind of energy I want. So I can be Danny records six hours of research in less than three hours' comments. But enough about Sweet Sweet Whipple. Uh, Whitey Bulger, very different end to most organized crime stories. Very rarely do we see a criminal underworld figure live to such an old age. So many of them are gunned down as relatively young men in their 40s or 50s, if they live that long. Even if they make it to their elder years, they're often forced to go into hiding from other gangsters, you know, they've made enemies with along the way, witness protection, just moving the fuck out of the area never to come back, something. We learned that in our Irish mob suck, but not with Whitey, not until the very end, not until he was, you know, pretty advanced in his years, until he finally lost fed protection. He just kept killing, didn't even hand the murders, over to someone else when he got close to what his uh, retirement age for most, still wanted to be the one to pull the trigger, still wanted to be the tough guy. What an interesting rise to the ranks he had. Able to make it to the top thanks to his own cunning ambition, ruthlessness, and being lucky enough to have a high-ranking politician for a brother and being willing to work with the feds and be the biggest rat in the history of organized crime in Boston. His brother helped him get out of prison years before he otherwise would have during that first stint for robberies, later working with the Colleen gang on the streets of South Boston his brother's presence protected him from retaliation. Then Whitey Bulger found himself the biggest protector of them all, right? The FBI, originally created back in 1961 by J. Edgar Hoover, the Top Echelon program was supposed to recruit gangsters to have them provide valuable information in exchange for some level of protection. But likely no one could have anticipated how far Whitey Bulger and John Connolly would take that promise of protection. Bulger fed Connolly a steady stream of information On the uh, patriarchal crime family based in nearby Providence, Rhode Island, patriarchal family members were sometimes allies, allies, my God, uh, but often rivals with the Winter Hill Gang, and the FBI essentially sided with Whitey and the South Boston Gang in this ongoing competition. And Whitey, while committing murder after murder, while running drugs, selling guns, extorting local businesses, uh, running illegal gambling operations, and on and on and on, would convince his FBI handlers time and time again to look the other way and sometimes help him. While he ratted out other gangsters for doing the same shit that he was doing, while he also bribed those FBI agents. And that went on for two decades. Finally, in 1994, the Drug Enforcement Administration, the Massachusetts State Police, and the Boston Police Department launched an investigation into Whitey, accurately believing the FBI had been compromised. And in December of 1994, the now-retired Connolly helped his informant and himself one last time and told Bolger, arrests were coming, get out of here. Whitey spent the next 16 years on the run as a fugitive. Joining him for much that time was his girlfriend, Catherine Gregg. During his time as a fugitive, Bulger and Gregg traveled frequently, were reported to be uh, seen in Vancouver, British Columbia, London, England, and a ton of other places. And finally, he settled in Southern California. He and Gregg ultimately were arrested in 2011 outside their little apartment in Santa Monica, California, a few blocks from the beach. He was charged with 48 federal crimes, including 19 charges of murder. Two years after his arrest, jury found Bulger guilty of 31 counts sentenced to life in prison plus five years. Over a decade earlier, Connolly was indicted in December of 1999, charged with feeding confidential information to Bulger and Flemmie, lying in FBI reports, taking bribes. Other racketeering charges soon followed. Connolly was convicted in 2002, sentenced to 10 years behind bars. Then in 2008, Connolly was convicted of second-degree murder for another one of Bulger's victims, sentenced to 40 years on that conviction, guaranteeing that Connolly would spend the rest of his life in prison, almost did, He was recently released uh, because of ill health and uh, allowed to live back in Boston under constant supervision. Finally, on October 30th, 2018, Bulger, 89 years old, using a wheelchair because of a hip injury, killed hours after he arrived at the Hazleton Federal Prison in West Virginia. Fellow inmates beat him to death using a padlock stuffed inside of a sock. A fitting death, according to many of the families of Bulger's victims. And even though many of the figures in this story are either dead or in prison, there are still questions that remain likely will never know what goes on in the FBI, but there remains legitimate concerns about how organizations like these partner with criminals and decide who gets let off the hook for reasons like friendship and greed and who gets hung out to dry. While B- Bulger isn't around anymore, he leaves behind a legacy as the last true Irish-American mob boss of Boston and also the biggest rat of them all. Jimmy Top Dog, Jimmy Tough Guy, Jimmy Pork chops with a side of droopy eyeballs, Jimmy the Rat. Time now for the takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, James Whitey Bulger, a career criminal who rose to become Boston's premier mob boss beginning in the 1960s. While operating with the Winter Hill Gang, he made a name for himself for fighting against the Mullen Gang before consolidating both under a sort of ruling board that he participated in. But soon he would aim for singular power. Taking out his competition in the mafia and other gangsters, so that virtually all of Boston's underworld activity—gambling, bookkeeping, extortion, drug trade, and more—passed through him. Number two, Whitey Bulger was an FBI informant for over two decades, as he presi- uh, or roughly two decades as he presided over Boston's underworld. After being recruited by John Connolly, the two developed a close friendship. With Whitey referring to Connolly as "Zip," they lived in the same zip code. Supposedly, Whitey was an informant to help Connolly conquer the mafia. But what he really got out of it was decades of protection and tip-offs about pending indictments, ultimately allowing him to flee at the end of 1994 and hide out for over 16 years. Number three, on June 21st, 2011, a tip led to Bulger and his girlfriend, Catherine Gregg, being arrested at an apartment building in Santa Monica, California. They were posing as a retired couple, but after seeing a PSA on national television, a neighbor recognized him, recognized her, called the FBI. Whitey spent a dozen years on the FBI's 10 most wanted list at the time of his final arrest. Number four, on June 13th, 2013, Bulger's trial for murder and racketeering charges opens in Boston. His defense would claim that he was never an informant, that the FBI made the whole thing up, but get the fuck out of here. He maybe didn't corrupt the FBI like the FBI wanted everyone to think there was already corruption, but he was definitely an informant and took the corruption further. Luckily, the jurors would see through uh, his bullshit, uh, convicting an 83-year-old Bulger of being involved in 11 murders, several other crimes, including drug trafficking, sending him to prison for the rest of his life. And then his life would end on October 30th, 2018, when he was 89 years old. Number five, new info. There have been uh, several movies made about or featuring Whitey Bulger. He served as the inspiration for Jack Nicholson's performance as Frank Costello in Scorsese's The Departed, though the character wasn't referred to explicitly as Whitey. Whitey Bulger allegedly watched The Departed as a fugitive and critiqued Jack Nicholson's performance throughout. (laughs) He was spotted in the movie theater in 2006 uh, by a sheriff's deputy who happened to be from Boston. Later told reporters in an interview that Bulger shook his head in disgust many times while watching Jack Nicholson's fictional version of him on the big screen. By the time the cop retrieved his weapon after figuring out who was in the theater with him, Whitey was gone. Uh, But one of the most famous portrayals of Bulger would be 2015's Black Mask. Uh, With Johnny Depp portraying Bulger, while the film was mostly accurate, it did take some liberties. To start in the movie, Billy is the one who introduces Whitey to John Connolly, but this didn't happen. In fact, Whitey specifically desired his brother to be kept in the dark, as it related to his status as an FBI informant. Furthermore, the film claims that the untimely death of Bulger's son led him to commit violent acts with more consistency, while the death of a child could certainly cause someone to lash out. Not true in Bulger's case, since he started killing before his son died. <clears throat> excuse me also a scene where steve Flemmie is taken aback when bulger proclaims himself an informant but in truth Flemmie was an official fbi informant before bulger also just like he didn't like nicholson's portrayal uh bulger did not like johnny depp's either he refused to correspond with depp from prison during filming let his defense attorney hank brennan do the talking uh brennan compared depp's portrayal to the star's fantasy role in alice in wonderland johnny depp might as well have been playing the mad hatter all over again as far as james bulger is concerned. brennan told people magazine hollywood greed is behind the rush to portray my client and the movie missed the real scourge created in my client's case the real menace to boston during the time during that time and in other mob cases around the country the federal government's complicity in each and every one of those murders with top echelon uh with the top echelon informant program almost always the same case with these motherfuckers right they're not the bad guy no it's not me yeah, I did a few things I'm not proud of, but they're the bad guy. Someone else. Whitey, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the monster the FBI is. And look, those agents were corrupt as fuck. And I'm sure, like, uh, you know, not alone in that. But uh, even if they were all monsters, that doesn't mean that Whitey wasn't a monster too. Family members of Bulger's victims, uh, however, and some old associates, did attend the Boston world premiere and told the director he had captured the complicated man correctly. Time sucks top five takeaways whitey bulger how the fbi built a mob boss has been sucked if i had more time this week i would have uh, watched uh, the departed again and maybe black mass black mass was solid but the departed whoo gem of a film uh thank you to the bad magic productions team for all the help in making time suck thank you once again to queen of bad magic Lindsay cummins Thanks to the art warlock Logan Keith producing and directing today. Thanks to Bit, Bit Elixir for upkeep on the Time Suck app. The art warlock again for creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com and for helping run our socials along with our Suck Ranger and a team managed by our social media strategist Ryan Handelsman. Thanks to producer Sophie Evans for her wonderful research again. And thanks to all the uh, all seeing eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page. Uh, the Mod Squad for making sure Discord keeps running smooth. Cult of the Curious, three out of five stars. So many other Time suck adjacent Facebook groups. Uh, thanks to everyone over on the Time Sucks subreddit, Bad Magic subreddit. Uh, so many people uh, helping build community around here. Uh, next week, let's explore a mystery. We're going to cover the disappearance of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 on March 8th, 2014. What was supposed to be a routine flight from uh, Kuala Lumpur to Beijing ended with the total disappearances of 239 people on board. The disappearance of Flight MH370 captivated the world, including me, Millions of people kept up with the search, anxiously hoping that the plane would be found, that a miracle might happen, and the passengers would be uh, safe and unharmed, and that never happened. Then, for years, the families of passengers held out hope that at least the plane and its flight recorders would be found someday so they could know what happened to their missing loved ones. Investigators searched thousands of miles, looked into passengers' personal and financial information, searched pilots' homes. Still, no one knows exactly what happened to MH370. Unless the plane is found, all we have are investigative determinations based on the final flight path of MH370. During a regularly scheduled flight from uh, Kuala Lumpur to Beijing, the plane flew hundreds of miles off course, made a sharp turn, then disappeared somewhere into the Indian Ocean, or if you let your imagination really uh, go wild, disappeared into some uh, part of the multiverse, slipped into a parallel dimension, was picked up by alien spacecraft, dove into the hollow Earth. Crazy speculation, I know, but we don't know what happened. What we do uh, believe most, or what do we believe most likely happened to MH three seventy? Who were the pilots flying that day? The passengers on board. How did researchers figure out uh, all that we know today? And what are some of the craziest and somewhat probable conspiracies surrounding the plane dis- uh, plane's disappearance? That's what we're going to be looking into, and we'll talk about how MH three seventy is far from the only flight that has gone missing under mysterious circumstances. In fact, there have been many strange plane disappearances throughout aviation history. Planes disappearing at high altitude unsolved quote broken arrow incidents and very strange final communications let's get mysterious maybe even spooky and more on next week's episode of time suck right now let's head on over to this week's time sucker updates updates get your time sucker updates first up we got meat sack terrorizer rory fitzpatrick rory blasted ear holes rory six cents of humor Roy, listen to what I fucking force you to listen to, you pile of shit, Fitzpatrick. And he writes, hail suck master and the assorted lords of the suck. Allow me to start off by saying this will probably be a long message, and I refuse to apologize. Worth it. First off, my whole family asked me to thank Dan for the shout out on Instagram for your birthday about Jangles. I'd apologize to Penny Pooper, but I think we all know that's a bullshit apology. Catherine worked her tiny little space nude buns off designing him. It was so good. Still thankful. Uh, So we're all just glad he brought your family some laughs. Second off, and possibly more importantly, I have the uh, MOHAB of Cummins Law situation to share with the cult. The uh, Massive Ordnance Air Blast is uh, that acronym. Here we go. This time of year marks the local farmer's market on Saturday mornings. It's a pretty large event that draws several thousand people throughout the course of the day. Also held directly in front of the hotel restaurant I'm a chef at. Last Saturday, I came to work early to avoid the inevitable traffic that comes with said farmer's market. Went into my kitchen, fired up the Lonely Hearts Killers episode while I got things ready. After about 45 minutes of prep work, my earbuds went silent. Strange, but shit happens. I put them in their case and plugged it in, thinking they needed a charge. I have never been more wrong in my fucking life. Turns out I was still linked to the Bluetooth system for our bar's music, which is set to play outside during the farmer's market. So yeah, I get called out to the kitchen to our patio or called out of the kitchen to our patio just in time to hear your voice loud as fuck shout, I can come, I can drown this whole fucking room to the approximately 300 to 400 people <laughs> setting up their stance and some early comers to the market. Safe to say the kitchen staff is no longer allowed to use the bar's music system and I can't say I'm upset about that. So well done, mother sucker. Anyways, that's about it for this email. Hoping it makes it on the podcast. And if it does, would you also be kind as to say, as to give my family a shout out? Catherine, Jacob, Angie, and I are all regular suckers. And hearing you say thanks in the video of poor Penny Pooper was the highlight of their entire month. Again, not one bit sorry for the length of this email. Much love from the whole family for making learning so awesome and fun. Keep on sucking, Rory. Uh, Rory, man, thank you, man. My allergies, I don't know, just started going crazy 10 minutes ago. So sorry, <laughs> I'm constantly like gulping and stuff. It's so weird when it happens out of nowhere. It's like somebody just fucking dumped a bushel of pollen in here. Uh, but Rory, thanks again for the, uh, yeah, uh, lovely Bojangles gift. Or I guess I, guess I should thank... Uh, Technically, for Bojangles, I should think, scrolling back here, oh, where is her name? Come on. Why is this taking for fucking ever? Catherine! Thank you, Catherine, for making the Bojangles. And, uh, one second. Um, (laughs) yeah, thank you for that. Uh, Yeah, I probably got too much joy out of occasionally terrifying uh, our uh, fucking goofy dogs with that. Luckily, my dogs both seem to understand that my humor randomly now and they'll bark at me and play attack me when the terror is over uh as someone who goes to farmers markets every summer i love this message i know that farmers markets are filled with plenty of people good people who would be fucking horrified by so much of what goes on here there's a lot of um a lot of how do i describe their types uh, just just people who i don't know listen to more maybe wholesome less profane less dark type of content the thought of you traumatizing hundreds hundred of these people is very funny to me. Uh, yeah, you have an awesome family. My man, uh, cherish them. Next up, sweet sucker Rachel Kinzer is a gem who writes, hello, Dan and the rest of the Bad Magic team. Not sorry in advance for the long message. I'm writing in to tell you how much joy this podcast has brought to me and how it's made me see joy and humor and meaning in more things in my life. Oh, fuck yeah. Uh, I started listening to Time Suck earlier this year. I've become obsessed. I'm working my way to the back catalog and every episode gives me more and more reasons to listen. Dan, I don't agree with you on so much politically, but I will say it doesn't affect me like it does with a lot of people in my day-to-day life. You are ridiculously open-minded and level-headed when you talk about any subject, yet your moral compass and the way you are willing to change your views upon hearing new info has been inspiring to me to be more open and considerate of differing opinions and those trying to learn. Often I find that being curious is what many people mistake for being smart. People think I'm super smart, but I really know so much about so many different topics because I always remain curious. Listening to Timesick hasn't hurt either. I also want to say the way you cultivate a community, so many different types of people is admirable as hell. Most podcasters and celebs are worried about having too much of a parasocial relationship with their fans. Many for good reason. And I love the way you balance friendship and professionalism within the community. You're one of the only public figures I know of who I believe not only loves their fans, but you also deserve them. That's very nice. The way you support and uplift this community is so admirable. And I truly have no shame saying that you're one of my heroes. Now, if you feel like reading this on air, I have two requests. Don't skip reading my letter just because people have criticized you for jerking yourself off on air, reading letters that praise you too much. I love when the updates include letters from people saying how much you and TimeSuck have positively influenced their lives because I feel the same way and it makes me feel less alone. And then two, please shout out my future brother-in-law, Dennis. He is such a great partner to my sister, Mary, and he's also become a great friend to me. He introduced me to your stand-up and to TimeSuck and Scared to Death. He's been through so much in his life and me and him argue politics way too much, but I love him. And he has been the first and only good partner my baby sister has ever had. He deserves a shout out on his favorite podcast ever. Thank you. Keep up the good work. The show has changed my life. I can't wait to save enough to attend Wet Hot Bad Magic Summer Camp next year. Loyal sucker, Rachel Kinzer. Well, Rachel, Rachel sorry, my fucking allergies are crazy. Uh, you are so nice and a great writer, great communicator. Uh, thank you for bringing uh, Rachel in here, Dennis. Glad you two differ strongly on politics and still love and respect each other. We need more of that. Good on you both. Uh, Yes, Rachel, remaining curious, I think is so important. Uh, I hate it sometimes, but so important. I hate feeling the need to change opinions based on new information. I am jealous of people in a way who just like figure out their opinions on various issues that like, I don't know, fucking 18, 19, you're like, you know what? I'm just gonna sit in this pocket forever. Some of them, it benefits them very much socially, benefits them very much financially. I don't think it's correct, but they don't get hurt in life by it, it seems like. Uh, I hate feeling the need to change opinions based on new info, right? Make me feel stupid moments, weak, foolish even. Finally, I've uh, been working to accept that there's no end game with curiosity, right? Uh, with knowledge, there's just a journey. And as hard as it is in moments to feel lost and confused, I've accepted that my journey will always include that. I'll keep working on being uncomfortable or, or being comfortable, excuse me, with being uncomfortable. I'll continue to try and take in different opinions, consider if they're right, I'm wrong. Not just blow them off, even though, God, in a lot of moments, that would be easier and feel so much better. Uh, Hail Nimrod, Rachel. Keep disagreeing, keep being you, and I hope you keep sucking. And now a quick one from Creep Cemetery Sucker, or Creepy, Jonathan Sellers, who writes, "Uh, Dan just finished listening to the Crusade Suck and believe I may be the first first victim of Cummins Law where no audio was actually heard by onlookers. I was doing hill repeats at Crown Hill Cemetery, a massive cemetery here in Indianapolis. Weird, I know, but trust me, it's a thing here. As my 220-pound ass is hauling up the hill for my final one, I had to get the, I get to the part about pervert Templar Godfrey regaling his fellow knights with tales of drowning and puss. I couldn't take it anymore. I stopped uh, rubbing, I stopped running, excuse me. <laughs> I, think it's, I think you meant running. I don't think you meant rubbing here. Uh, hands on my knees, belly laughing. I look over, 20 yards away is a small group of very concerned cemetery groundskeepers seeing me laughing, my sweaty ass off at seemingly nothing. I'm lucky I wasn't committed. P.S., thank you for switching to (laughs) J-Town. Instead of Jerusalem, God damn it. Instead of Jerusalem, instead of, I'm not even trying to do that on purpose. I had it fucking earlier today on a roses. Instead of Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I don't know why the fuck my brain puts more syllables in that. Since you are completely incapable of saying one of the easiest words ever. I know, I have brain damage. Apparently, uh, PPS shout out to my boy, Logan, for getting me addicted to time suck. Logan is having the best year ever, including winning the local triathlon two weeks in a row. If you read this on air, uh, shout out to Logan on beating all the chubby weekend warriors who compete JK. Uh, I've attached a picture so you can see how badass he is though. Three out of five stars wouldn't change a thing. Jonathan. Yeah. I don't know what the fuck again happens to my brain with Jerusalem. Maybe you had a mini stroke, uh, love your weird moment in the cemetery uh yeah i would think you were out of your mind if i was seeing that and logan yeah is a badass yeah his pick made me think just for a second about really trying to get ripped but then i thought about how much work that would be and i got myself uh i got myself another ice mocha which i was drinking a little bit on this episode keep being weird my friend finally concerned cult member ian ferguson wants uh to share some thoughts uh have some thoughts shared and i imagine some prayers for anyone who wants to give those to a friend he writes, hi, Dan, sorry to bother you, but could you give a shout out to the toughest woman I know, Charity Ferguson? She's gonna need a lot of love from the Time Suck and space as a community because we are going in on the 8th of August for a biopsy on her thyroid to see if our worst fears are realized and she has cancer. Much love to you, Lindsay, and the other crew members of Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, Ian Ferguson. So not a friend. I imagine this is your spouse. Charity, uh, sorry you're in a scary situation. Hoping, obviously, you will get the best possible news. And uh, if you don't, I know Ian. Many others will be there for you. Be loved. You must be a great person to have that love. Keeping the toughest motherfucker, the baddest boss bitch that Ian knows. And hail Nimrod. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Jerusalem. Now I'm fucking nailing it. Thanks for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast. Scared to death and time suck each week. Secret suck each week for space lizards. Please don't work with the FBI to rise to the ranks and become your city's top mob boss this week. Stay home, eat your pork chops, and keep on sucking. I uh, forgot to thank a few other people for helping research this week's episode. Uh, Denny Encyclopedias and Shit Flynn. Jackie, Googles the fuck out of shit, O'Connor. Fat Kenny Moore, even fatter Mikey Wallace. Holy shit, we got to get you on Slim Fast, Dicky Duffy. Too skinny, Tony Cunningham. Seriously, eat a fucking sandwich already, Randy McMahon and Lenny Pork Cutlets Malone. Jumping Jimmy James, Johnny Jamie, Juniper Jackknife Johnson. Appreciate the hard work